from the past. Please listen carefully. Coco. Welcome to the Coco Crew Podcast. A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information. Featuring the Tandy Color Computer. Got your Coco Crew yet? Coco. All right, all right. Welcome, Coco Cruisers. You are listening to the Coco Crew Podcast, episode number 62. Ooh, wow, that is a big number. <laughs> what do you think, Neil? Do you think we're going to get to this? We're almost to retirement age now with us. Huh? I can't believe <laughs> That's it. exactly what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Still going. Yeah, well, see, I think my grandparents were allowed to retire at 62. My parents maybe have to go to 65, but I'm pretty sure mine says 67. <laughs> so we got at least until 67 before I can retire, I guess. Huh? <laughs> um, anyway, well, what a month coming up. Yet another month of COVID quarantine or whatever. Hopefully some people are getting in some good uh, cocoa time or whatever. Still kind of eluding me. I think it's partly from being depressed or whatever of all the crabbiness in the world. But, uh, you know, I try to at least keep up with the news. One thing to mention, um, coming up probably the day that this is released uh, to the public um, or thereabouts on July the 31st, that'll be the 40th anniversary of the introduction of the Tandy color computer, well, the TRS-80 color computer, along with the Model 3 and the Pocket Computer 1. That's according to TRSAD.org. Hooray, hooray, 40 years, practically my whole life. Um, maybe not quite, but um, a long time to have the uh, the cocoa in my life, so that's pretty exciting. And they're still working. Yeah, most of them at that's least. That's right, yeah. It's funny, you know, you read on, like, Facebook or whatever, you'd think these were tender, careful, turn-to-dust-when-you-touch-them things, the way some people talk about them. I uh, saw somebody said, I'm afraid to turn mine off and on. I, don't, I want a hard reset switch. Because, <laughs> you know, because some apps can, of course, hijack the reset switch for the soft reset. I have some advice for that person. The only thing to fear is fear itself. Yeah, well, I think probably so. I mean, I, who knows, right? You, you turn the power off and on. I mean, that's probably the most likely time you'll have a problem with the power supply, but... It doesn't seem like something that happens a lot to me, at least. Anyway, end of July, Cocoa Fest. I missed the last Glenside meeting, so I don't know if there's been any new updates there. Last I heard, they were hoping to get in with VCF Midwest, which, of course, was canceled. So, far as I know, there's still no word on any Cocoa Fest for 2020. We do have dates for Cocoa Fest 2021. I'm not sure how much longer it's worth holding out for 2020, but life goes on, I suppose. And the assembly is still, um, let's see, it'll be uh, three months away. We're hoping that's still going to happen. There's a survey sent out from an organization uh, committee asking about who will actually go. <laughs> So if you'd like to go to, to Tandy Assembly and you want it to actually occur, you may want to make sure to, to check your email for that for that survey and respond so that we have some idea that you might be coming. 
I think currently as it stands, there's rules in place in Ohio that would make that untenable. Maybe that'll change, but it needs to change pretty quickly for that to be something we can plan around. All right. Well, good news to all then, huh? So, anybody got a cool project going on? Anything fun or exciting happening? I got to spend a lot of time uh, working on my cocoa. You know, just yeah. using it uh, this weekend and uh, brushing up on getting ready to rev up for maybe some uh, programming projects. And uh, so, yeah, fun to uh, get to spend a lot of quality time with it. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah, I need to uh, keep letting things back up on me. And so it's like, well, I can't got a little spare time, but I need to go ahead and pay the bills for the month, or I'm going to go ahead and fix that thing that is broken in the back door, or you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and so, not having much free time to actually just do cocoa stuff, but still hoping maybe it'll happen. It's what about any acquisitions? Who's gotten something cool lately? Anything? I picked up off of eBay two, they're, they're young kid books basically from back in the 80s that are you know kind of like choose your own adventure style books or whatever that's um those are called the bites brothers and they have like computer programs as part of the you know the the activity you know, type in stuff from the book to do things or whatever there's a series of them i think there's i'm not sure how many actually six or eight ten maybe i don't know these are only the first two i haven't got through them yet haven't let it become a new collecting obsession yet, but it probably will. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have any Bites Brothers books, um, feel free to contact me. I'll send you my address, and you can ship them, and I'll be happy to thank you on the air. No, <laughs> 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 um, oh, but, um, yeah, that's all, kind of the only thing really going on big time lately. Yeah, I still need to go through the uh, the pile of boxes that uh, the Boise uh, liberated from his collection for me. <laughs> yeah, um, Might uh, be some uh, sweet potatoes in there. Yeah, I, I did open the boxes. I was afraid he'd have strawberries. <laughs> <in there. laughs> That's an old joke for anybody listening. <laughs> so anyone else you know, have any new acquisitions or anything? Dog Days of Summer got us down. It has been hot. Ooh, hot. Yeah, here too, yeah, big time. <laughs> big time. Oh, my God, turn the fan off, turn the uh, hairdryer off when I walk outside. <laughs> even even been hot over here, and that's rare. Yeah. I guess that's our introduction. <laughs> Maybe not as inspiring as we would like, but that's what we got yeah, this month. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we uh, take, a break, take a break, regroup, and we'll be back with some announcements. So what did you want to show me? Check this out. I do this poke, and the printer is now at 9,600. Yeah, that's a popular one. And I wrote this little program to do all these pokes to give me access to 40-track drives. Yeah. And this one lets me access both sides of the drive. Okay. And this utility automatically creates line numbers for me in BASIC. You do know that all these things are built into ADOS, don't you? Huh? Have you been living in a cave somewhere? ADOS adds all sorts of cool functions to your color computer, all the things you described and more. It even supports true lowercase on the new Coco 2s. You're kidding me. ADOS adds things like repeat keys so you can edit your last command, DOS command for OS 9, error trapping in BASIC, there's a RAM command to run in full RAM mode, two-column disk directories, keyword abbreviation, and that doesn't even scratch the surface of the features of ADOS. That sounds easier than all these pokes and short utility programs. You better believe it. And ADOS comes with an easy-to-use configuration program. You just run it, enable the things you want, 
Ignore what you don't want. Sounds great. You can run ADOS from disk, or you can have ADOS create a ROM image, and you can just burn that onto a ROM and put it on your disk controller, so it boots up right into ADOS every time you boot your Coco. Imagine, you never have to set your baud rate again. Wow. That's amazing. Will it work with my Coco 1? ADOS works with both Coco 1 and Coco 2 systems, and it's available for just $27.95. You'll wonder how you ever lived without it. Supercharge your color computer with ADOS from Spectro Systems. Spectro Systems, Miami, Florida. Okay, Coco Cruisers, welcome back. Now it's time for some announcements. Uh, you are, of course, listening to the Coco Crew Podcast. We are available on Twitter as a Twitter handle at Coco Crew Podcast. That's at sign C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. If you uh, like to, to tweet, feel free to tweet at us, and uh, we may tweet back. Uh, we've not yet gotten a parlor account, but I've been thinking about it, so I'll let you know if that happens. <laughs> that may be too political. I don't know. <laughs> we, of course, uh, also have a Facebook page available. So if you're on the Book of Faces, come and check us out. Our Facebook page, The Coco Crew Podcast. Oh, that's four separate words. Come and join the group. Keep up with the newest announcements, maybe occasionally a little news that's uh, you know side channel for the podcast, or maybe occasionally uh, a little head, jump ahead of the crowd, learn some stuff, and be cool. All right. Of course, we are a podcast, so of course we have our RSS feed available at cococrew.org which works with most podcatchers. But we are, of course, also available through Apple Podcasts or Google Play for normal podcast downloads. And if you prefer to stream, we are available uh, through Spotify, uh, with Stitcher, and, of course, TuneIn. So uh, if you are an Alexa user, you can say, Alexa, play Coco Crew Podcast. And, you know, you might be surprised what happens. Of course, we have been taking for some time, we've been taking our audio podcasts and converting them to a video form and posting them on YouTube. Feel free to look for us on YouTube. The uh, biggest advantage there is uh, uh, YouTube does a pretty good job producing subtitles for the podcast. So if uh, you have trouble with uh, with accents or maybe if English is uh, not your first language, uh, sometimes it's helpful to have the uh, subtext there to read then it may enhance your enjoyment uh, to be able to check it out, the podcast on the video version. So check us out on YouTube. Remain as a member of the Throwback Network. Uh, this is a collection of retro-themed podcasts. It includes um, both technology and 80s culture and other kind of retro-themed <laughs> podcasts. So if you're caught up with the Coco Crew podcast and looking for something else to listen to, then we recommend that you check out the Throwback Network. We are also listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. This is also a list of retro-themed podcasts, but in this case, all technology-related, old computers, old video game systems, that sort of thing. Again, if you're caught up with the Coco Podcast, then we recommend that you check out the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. Audio for the Coco Podcast is hosted by CyberEars. If you have a need to host audio on the internet, whether it's for your own podcast or your church uh, services or your business or whatever you got, then we recommend that you check out Cyber Ears, where you will get your audio on your terms. If you'd like to reach out and contact the host of the Coco Crew Podcast via email, we have some addresses set up just for that. First three will reach all of the hosts of the Coco Crew Podcast. Go, S-H-O-W, at cococrew.org. That's C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W dot O-R-G. 
We also have podcast, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, at CocoCrew.org, and feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at CocoCrew.org. Should you prefer to um, contact just one of the hosts individually, then uh, we also have those set up. So I'm available as John, J-O-H-N, at CocoCrew.org. Neil is available as Neil, N-E-I-L, at CocoCrew.org. Mike, of course, is Mike, M-I-K-E, at CocoCrew.org. And Boise is... Now, listen to the spelling, B-O-I-S-Y at CocoCrew.org. Feel free to reach out and then touch one of us, so to speak. Those are our standard announcements. Here's where we normally would like to have, uh, well, we do have a few announcements for events in real life. Uh, some of them um, may still be <laughs> more speculative or hopeful. Well, who knows? But VCF Midwest was scheduled to be in September, but that has now been canceled. So um, that is a sad event. Um, moving on, uh, Tandy Assembly is still scheduled for the weekend of October 30th through November 1st of 2020. Again, their surveys have been sent out to make sure that there's still enough people interested in coming to make that worthwhile. And, of course, it will be subject to whatever legal restrictions the government of Ohio or local people or whoever managed to impose on us Um but for now, we're still hoping to have the event. So respond to your surveys and make it look like it's going to be worthwhile. <laughs> that will be, again, October 30th through November 1st of 2020. And um, all hope uh, not quite given up, but um, maybe uh, looking to the future. We have on the books Cocoa Fest 2021, scheduled for April 24th through the 25th of 2021. Hopefully we'll get through it to, to there and, and COVID will no longer be a big issue. At the way things have been going, who knows? But <laughs> anyway, there's our announcements. So why don't we take another break and then uh, we'll be back with some news. Gimme Soft presents Mac, 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 Mac Sound. Gimme, Gimme Soft Soft presents Max Sound. Gimme Soft presents Max Sound. Max Sound presents Gimme Soft. Max Sound is a hardware software, high quality audio recording station designed for the new Color Computer 3 by Lucas Industries 2000. Max Sound allows you to store real music and voices in the Color Computer 3. 3, 3. Max Sound will provide hours, hours, hours of fun for the whole family. From Hel- 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 Helsinki to Christchurch, Max Sound, the quality recording studio of the 80s. From Gimmesoft. New from ENG Systems Laboratories, the keyboard beeper cartridge. It plugs right into your Color Computer's expansion port but still allows you to connect any other device using the inline transparent expansion port. The cartridge has an onboard speaker. Hear a beep as any key is pressed, significantly reducing typing errors. LED power indicators monitor the 5-volt, plus 12-volt, and minus 12-volt power supplies. Flip a switch to enable or disable a cartridge detect line. Power up into basic or a game pack. Best of all, it has an easily accessible reset switch right on the cartridge pack. No more feeling around blindly behind the computer trying to find the reset switch. All of these features and no modifications to your color computer are required. The keyboard beeper cartridge is just $59.95 plus postage and handling. Another great product from ENG Systems Laboratories, Springfield, Virginia. 
All right, Cougar Cruisers, welcome back. Now it's time for the news. First item I've got on the list here comes from Art Flexer, longtime member of the community, ADOS guy. Posted uh, some of those. It's actually an email posting from back in May we kind of been holding on to. References back to uh, an interview that Tim Lindner did with Marty Goodman. Anyway, it uh, talks about uh, what he calls the uh, shift break reset technique. And so what it amounts to is that once you follow through the description or whatever, if you hold down shift and break while you do a reset, basically the Coco ROM will, will uh, essentially break out to user control without having cleared all the memory. And so if you're trying to say reverse engineer something with a complex loader or whatever, something that puts code into memory in a few places as it's loading, that sort of thing, it can simplify that process, the process of figuring out where that code goes and, and how it's running or, or whatever. I don't know. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, I probably can't explain it much better without you uh, <laughs> um, being able to uh, to take a, take a look yourself. But it's a, an interesting prospect, and if you're looking to, to break some games or, or copy protection on games or that sort of thing, uh, it's a neat capability that might come in handy. And uh, it's just an interesting write-up that was worth talking about. We probably would have covered this one in an earlier episode, but um, we kind of were reaching out about possibly having an interview. Um, and we still may, but um, let's just say it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> um, anyway, it's cool to hear that there are some uh, kind of hidden, um, eh, it's not quite an Easter egg, I guess, but some hidden things that you can do to be able to catch the cocoa with its pants down, shall we say. Um, when you're trying to break, um, say, a copy protection scheme or other kind of complex loading kind of stuff. Pretty neat. So moving on, we got an MC10 video posted to YouTube from um, Ingmar Mainz. Not familiar with Ingmar. Basically, he's showing you how to load a program on the MC10, and the program happens to be a demo of DW, which um, is an acronym for continuous wave, but it actually refers to Morse code. Uh, it's a term that, that uh, ham at radio operators use for Morse code, is CW. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm not sure how super informative it is for anyone who's already a fan of the Coco or the MC10, but it's just good to know that somebody else is out there, and... Um, Posting some uh, some videos and um, maybe it's uh, someone to keep an eye on. Very cool. Thank you, Ingmar. Hope to see more from you. All right. Uh, so first part of the news always has a few random things in it. <laughs> and so here's one gaming related. Sega prepares console comeback and they're about to get wrecked from a Max Mueller or Mueller maybe at CCN. This is, you know, not exactly Coco stuff, um, but kind of relates to somebody who used to be big in old video games and kind of talking about bringing stuff back in in reference to, um, you know, the competition includes the, some of these retro-inspired consoles like the modern-day Atari 2600 uh, thing that uh, we keep hearing might come back. But I assume this is actually a more modern-style console they're thinking of, but... It seems like Sega should um, should be able to carve out a place um, back in the uh, video gaming market. I don't know, maybe not, but I can see why they would want to. There used to be a, certainly used to be a big day back in the Sonic the Hedgehog uh, 
Ortega kind of days. <laughs> so what do you think, Neil? You're a gaming expert. Does uh, Sega got a chance in Modern World? I hope they do. You know, I like Sega. And, um, I mean, basically after the Sega Genesis, they kind of had, you know, they were kind of struggling, you know, with the last uh, two consoles they released. So hopefully this one uh, does well for them. Yeah. I was shocked to see this article, so that's, that's pretty cool. Well, I know the Dreamcast held on, you know, in some ways longer than it should have. Um, yeah, you know, even that. after it was canceled, there were still some releases of games for it. Maybe there'll be some fans still hanging out and waiting for it, or probably there'll be, you know, people that are just judging on its own merits, whatever those might be. But I don't know. It's always cool to hear an, an old player coming back. It's kind of like betting on Mike Tyson in the boxing match, you know. <laughs> Watch your ears. <laughs> um, all right well enough of that let's see moving on um so this is from robin harris uh, who is this um i think we had one of the robin's uh, articles last month robin is building some sort of homebrew 6502 based system but uh, the neat thing about the 6502 hardware is you know the bus interfacing is pretty similar to what you want to use for 6809 a lot of what he's writing for the 6502-related stuff uh, applies at a hardware level if you want to connect to a 6809. So, with that said, he's got an article here on the um, LCD module 4-bit mode with the 6522-VIA. I think the 6522 was last month's article that we referenced. Um, <laughs> so, anyway, if you've ever seen these uh, LCD modules with a couple of lines uh, that are sold with a lot of Arduino and those kind of style kits, uh, they're not too hard to interface to. A lot of people are interested in doing so and whatever. And maybe it's something you'd like to hook up to your Coco. And this explains kind of how the hardware works. The next news item is follow-up on my Vectrix joystick repair by David Galloway. This is a Facebook post that I can't see. But I'm assuming that someone has rebuilt a Vectrix uh, joystick or actually repaired an existing existing one, which I would presume is good because those things have to be hard to find, right, John? Yeah. Well, the Vectrix joysticks, especially the full plastic and original stuff, is fairly, well, not super hard to find, but you got to get your checkbook out. Exactly. They go pretty expensive. Um, but what's interesting about them in my book is that they're, you know, they're very similar in to the way the Cocoa joysticks work. They're wired up a little bit differently, um, but very similar. Those who, um, you know, this is on the Vectrix Fans Unite Facebook group. And if you join up there, you should be able to see the post. And it's um, the person is taking a Tandy, you know, non-deluxe, or what I've always called the Black Beauty. He's taking a, a Black Beauty style of a joystick and used that basically as a parts machine or parts scowl for um doing some repairs on his um, Vectrix joystick. So basically taking the gimbal out or um, parts of it and um, been able to do the repair. But anyway, the point being that they, despite a few wiring differences, they're actually handled pretty similarly between the Vectrix and the Coco. And I think that's interesting. All right, the next item is setting up an MC-10 with an MCX-128 and mc load software by Steve Strobridge. This is a YouTube video, and from what I can see, Steve is, uh, it's about a 12-minute video. He's going through setting up an MC-10 with an MCX-128, which I believe is a memory expansion board for that computer, and uh, goes through and talks about it. it looks pretty interesting. 
Yeah, the MCX-128, not only does it expand the memory, it also includes ROMs that expand the, the basic uh, capabilities, the basic language um, for the MC-10. It's been a popular upgrade with a lot of people. Uh, I think uh, Jim Gary has used it a lot in his various Honda's collection of, uh, <laughs> of MC-10 work. If you're interested in the MC-10 and can get an MCX-128, it's probably a worthwhile upgrade. And see here showing you how to use it along with the, it includes the access to this MC server, which is kind of like, it's essentially drive wire kind of repackaged, but, um, you know, for the MC-10 specifically. Yeah, it's good to see. All right, the next news item is, here is the Timberman source code minus the resource files by Mr. Paul Thayer. And it looks like he has posted, I guess, the source code to his game, which is very generous. Very nice, Paul. Good way to share your work. Yeah, no, it's cool. Well, it's always good to see people sharing their work. You always hope that somebody will pick it up and, and do something with it or learn something from it or document it or whatever. It's easy for um, a source release to basically be, amount to a, a code dump <laughs> uh, where you just kind of throw it out there and it's there, but then if nothing ever happens with it, kind of as um, if a tree falls in the forest sort of situation. Um, but uh, hopefully somebody will take a look and find something useful. I think he said he's um, Timberland source code, Timber Timberman source code, minus the resource files, which probably means some of the graphics or whatever. So maybe you could uh, do a version with your own, you know, choppers or whatever, your own characters for doing the chopping, or maybe your own axe replacements or whatever. Depends on how much you're into it, what you can make of it. Good work. The next news item is I just couldn't stop with the cast to basic script I coded yesterday by Julian Brown. This appears to be in the Dragon 3264 owners users group on Facebook. I can't see the post. John, can you talk about it? So he is working on a CAS to basic script. I don't know the specifics of that. It says it added extended Dragon DOS token. So basically, I guess he's in the Dragon world using a CAS file that he wants to turn back into a, a text file representing the basic code. Added it so that along with the non-DOS tokens, he's added the DOS tokens as well for Dragon DOS. Then he checked Coco compatibility, and so now he's done the Coco to specific tokens and the RS DOS tokens. Anyways, you got a link on Bitbucket for people who want the source, I guess. So, you know, it's kind of a typical story if somebody starts working on a project and figure out, well, if I do this one more thing, that'd be cool. If I do this one more thing, that'd be cool. And <laughs> anyway, that's where he ended up, and he released uh, something on Bitbucket for those who might want to. Um, well, who might want to use the tool or do something similar. I've often thought that someone um, should go through the tool shed code, and um, there's tools there for doing this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. That's right. And, um, and add probably MC10 and or Dragon um, tokenization and detokenization for the like the Tech B tools or whatever, and uh, add the Dragon file systems for the Deck B tool or whole new tool called a DDoS or something. But <laughs> anyway, maybe maybe Julian uh, is a listener and can pick up on that idea. That'd be cool. The next uh, link I've got is um, not a computer thing at all, really. Um, but it, I found it helpful. 
This is just a little music lessons, uh, music lesson on different types of clefs, and particularly the treble clef and the bass clef, and how they relate to one another, and where middle C is on the two different kinds of clefs, and that sort of thing. And then introduces the notion of the grand staff, which kind of puts the two clefs together. I don't know if it may sound like I'm speaking Spanish or something. Um, that if you're not into music at all, I found it an interesting little article and. Uh, I'd always kind of wondered, you know, when you transition between the two clefs, exactly how much difference there were in the different notes uh, at the bottom versus at the top or whatever. And it helps to answer that particular question on this post. So, <laughs> I don't know. Check it out. Uh, maybe you'll find yourself going down a musical rat hole. Maybe you won't. But... I hope you'll enjoy it and uh, check it out. And um, if you want to produce some Cocoa programs with access to some decent music and you want to do it on cartridge, I've got a, I've got, <laughs> I've got a good technology that I can make available for you. So please uh, consider that as well. All right. The next one is from, from Timothy Lee at Ars Technica. It says, lawsuit over online book lending could bankrupt Internet Archive. Probably you've heard of us talking about the Internet Archive, uploading PDFs and that sort of thing to the Archive. It's a great resource, particularly for retro computing people, partly because one of their technology evangelists or whatever um, is a retro computing person that <laughs> has uploaded a lot of things. Anyway, uh, they apparently have run afoul of some book publishers or whatever with their some of their practices and... It's led to a lawsuit. It's probably not surprising, really. Maybe you come down on, on one side, maybe on the other. But it might be worth checking out, reading up, and, and learning more about exact issues at hand relating to copyright and the ability to share content over the, inter over the Internet, you know, in the modern age, that sort of thing. Hello. It's kind of in the worth, worth a good read kind of category. So. Yeah, this is really disappointing because uh, there's a lot of good stuff on there, and I would hope they don't go down. Yeah. yeah. Definitely want to keep them around one way or another. Um, you know, it may have been uh, a lofty dream in some ways, but <laughs> I hope it manages to stay on its foot one way or another. Okay. Got something, a post from a rich White House, and this appears to be associated with something called the Video Game History Foundation. I don't know if he's, you know, just a random contributor or if he's actually employed there or whatever. The title, Reconstructing a Lost NES, that's Nintendo Entertainment System, a lost NES game from 30-year-old source code disk. <laughs> so I think this is going to sound something that reads a little like Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Digital Age. Or <laughs> Basically, they've collected some old diskettes and um, figured out how to read them and put things back together and rebuild it and reproduce this on this basically lost game for the NES. Could be a good read. If you don't know, it might be a little tough to get through if you don't already have some understanding of how the NES works you know, from a technology standpoint. Um, but if you do, or if you at least want to enjoy some of the other stuff they talk about on you know, reading stuff off our old floppy disk and that sort of thing, then give it a shot. I think you might enjoy it. Did you check it out, Neil? No, I haven't checked it out actually. Uh, this this is new uh, new for me. I will though. I like the NES, as you know. Oh yeah. And the next one this comes from um, Sean Nichols at the Register. 
So a little bit tongue-in-cheek, I think. But uh, if you bought a CRT monitor or TV 13-plus years ago, probably about the last time you could buy one, at least off the shelf, <laughs> just hold on a little longer. There may be a small check for you. And so it's apparently there's a class action lawsuit pending in California uh, related to the sales of these old CRT televisions and monitors from a long time ago uh, between uh, 1995 and 2007. If it's like most class action lawsuits, even if they if they win, you know your check will probably be um, thirteen dollars and a and a um, buy a Big Mac get a Big Mac free. Um, <laughs> you find at the local McDonald's or something like that. Just kind of comical uh, technology that most of our listeners should be at least somewhat familiar with, but uh, just kind of an illustration of your your justice system at work here or your legal system at work. <laughs> how long it takes to resolve some of these things and how ridiculous some things can be. You're coming in loud and clear. Must be a realistic CB radio. 10-4, good buddy. It's my new 40-channel realistic. Radio Shack's got it on sale right now for only $79. I saved 60 bucks. That realistic sure is a good brand. 10-4 on that. You can depend on realistic. Where are you headed now? Back to Radio Shack. The new 4K TRS-80 color computer is on sale for just 349 bucks. 10-4, good buddy. Color graphics, sound, joysticks. Talk to you later. Whoa, where are you going? Radio Shack, of course. The realistic 40-channel CB radio and TRS-80 color computer on sale now. Only at Radio Shack, a Tandy company. Do you draw on a cocoa? Then you need Chroma Sketch, the picture program writer. Chroma Sketch is a graphics package that can actually write a basic program as you draw, paint, and letter on the high-res screen. Simply enable the program writer option and save the program to tape or disk to recreate your picture from basic at any time. Or save the screen as a binary image. Draw complex shapes and patterns. Save these definitions to tape or disk for use in your own basic programs. Chroma Sketch's dual cursors simplify creating arcs, circles, lines, and boxes. Enhance your drawing experience with options like full-screen crosshair cursor, or graph paper grid. Draw complex objects and Chroma Sketch will redraw, rotate, reduce, or enlarge them at any position in any color or pattern. Paint in any dot pattern including checks, stripes, or others that you define yourself. Draw dotted or twisted lines. Overlay color patterns for translucent effects. And the fast, compact graphic programs that Chroma Sketch generates are yours to use in any way you wish without license. These basic programs can be used for games, graphic adventures, educational software, or on-screen slideshows. Chroma Sketch can utilize any combination of joystick-compatible devices, including the touchpad or color mouse. Best of all, Chroma Sketch is just $29.95 on cassette and $34.95 on disc, plus free shipping and handling. Chroma Sketch requires 32K extended basic and works with all ROM versions. Chroma Sketch, the picture program writer from Nexus, Knoxville, Tennessee. This one is from Ed Snyder. I have a feeling this is going to keep getting better. Uh, Ed, apparently, uh, if you're familiar with working on the Gimme X uh, graphics enhancement for the color computer, figured out a way to add an eight gig or eight megabytes, sorry, eight megabyte module to the Gimme X. So it would extend the uh, Cocoa memory by uh, eight meg, and uh, that should last you multiple lifetimes. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a lot of money. Uh, you have greater. <laughs> Buy a whole new machine, and you'll have a lot of cool stuff to do with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you can go uh, check that link out and keep posted on Ed's developments of Gimme X. 
This next one is from Erico Patricio Monterio. A TRS-80 color computer dragon commercial quality action fight game. Uh, this one's kind of cool. It's not really a blog, but uh, it's kind of listed that way. But he's looking at developing a Coco game based on, uh, you know, the action fight games that were really uh, popular. It's kind of neat. It shows kind of the development of figuring out to use semi-graphics on the Coco, uh, use, using an emulator because it's never real Coco. The video in there is at least as animated uh, of uh, the development and kind of the end result. And he's doing it in basic, so uh, trying different things to see how to make it faster. Yeah, that's kind of cool, the uh, the fight characters he's got moving around and things. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. Pretty cool. Yeah, this was surprisingly uh, good <laughs> for, yeah. for the technology. Okay, uh, next one is from James Jones. Recently, I was surprised to discover that in Basic 09, you can assign things other than atomic types. So this article is just talking about some of the things you can do in Basic 09 if you're not familiar with basic 09 it has uh well it has some very flexible uh, variable declarations and structures and you can get really uh, complicated with it so in this article james is talking about creating multiple arrays and copying them to each other and definitely worth reading and, and checking out uh, another good one from james jones yeah yeah that's cool those um always count on james for some petty <laughs> language uh, analysis stuff pretty cool mm -hmm. Okay, our next one is from David Ude. It's the Bites Brothers, Brent and Barry, Solve Their Neighborhood Mysteries. This is a, a Facebook group, and it says, Move over, Frank and Joe Hardy, the Hardy Boys. The Bites Brothers, Brent and Barry, Solve Their Neighborhood Mysteries using cutting-edge 8-bit technology. So these are those uh, books that John was uh, alluding to at the beginning of the show, and it uh, looks like there's uh, several of these books published in the early 80s. Pretty cool. And they and uh, these these included uh, programs, correct, John? That's uh, that's right. You can type in stuff from them, work on problems, that sort of stuff. And I don't know if they're available as a PDF or not, but looks like they might be available in the Internet Archive. All right, our next uh, news article is from uh, Sierra Anscar. X War Windows packaging, good, bad. So it looks like here he's uh, putting together a, a package for Windows a Windows build here. Well, yeah, so he's a producer of XROAR and just asking for feedback on the packaging of it. thought it was worth uh, discussing. All right, the next news article is also from Sierra and Anscon. Uh, XROAR 0.36 released, a new version. I'm not sure how much difference in time there was between how's my packaging and I just released one. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. But, uh, <laughs> you know, nothing else. Um, he'll still continue with packaging releases in the future, so... Uh, I still appreciate whatever feedback you have. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a good um, emulator, too. XROAR yeah, is like a good emulator yeah, for Cocoa 1 and 2 and the Dragon. All right, the uh, next news article is from uh, Todd Wallace, a working chiptunes player for OS 9. This looks pretty cool. Right now it only supports, uh, on the right up here, is the uh, OPL sound chip, but it uh, looks like he has plans for the GMC. Yeah, we'll see how that works out. Yeah, I think right now he's only targeting uh, the Mega Mini over MPI. Yeah, um, there was the other sound card too, wasn't there? Uh, Ed Snyder had the um, just the regular. Yeah, he had. Um, I forget what that was called now. Yeah, I forget too. Coco PSG. That's it. Yeah, I, it probably works with that. I would, I would assume. I mean. Uh, well, I mean that'd be a whole different type of file, but 
I don't know if he's got them or not, but that's a cool video, cool walkthrough of the player. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's done a good work on this the software for the player, you know. And cool to see it in OS nine. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what got me is the OS nine uh, support. Because you know, cool. that's why you run OS nine. You know, it's for multimedia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do some multitasking. Well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> next news article is from Ed Snyder, speaking of Ed. Uh, MC10 8K internal mod. He goes on to explain in there that, you know, the, the MC10 is one of its flaws, shall we say, is um, the way they've wired up the video chip. It can't actually access the higher res um, modes because they access more memory than, than is actually wired to the chip. There's a few ways around this, but a couple of ways at least, but they're really variations on the theme of uh, hooking up those actual memory address lines one way or another. Apparently, Steve Strobridge asked him to do a well-known mod. Sure, I've totally followed, but for whatever reason, he decided to do his own version of the mod. I'm not sure how much it differs from the original version. Probably just want to show you the, the motherboard porn with the, the nicely soldered wires. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, pretty cool. Now, now, this mod, does it interfere with the uh, 16K... Uh... Expansion module? Like the MCX120 or the, the regular 16K? Yeah, just I'm not regular. sure. I'll bet they, I would bet they conflict, but I'm not 100% sure. All right, our next news article, speaking of the MC10, is uh, from Jim Gary. He is working on porting Fargo from VIC to MC10. I'm assuming that's, is that VIC20? Yeah, I think so. That's VIC. Um, it's a game here he's porting over. Yeah, it looks looks pretty neat. Two links there, I think. One is uh. Yeah, I see that he was having some problems on the first one here. Well, goes to the MC10 uh, Facebook group. You guys really need to join more Facebook groups. Never. Yeah, I do. I got I got to get on that MC10 group. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one's a YouTube link. Another game for the uh, MC10. Yep. There's a lot of support for it. The next news article is from uh, Richard Lorbieski. His company uh, is branding as Boysentech. Uh, Boysentech is proud to announce to be another source for the Coco SDC. So now you can get them through uh, Richard and uh, not just Ed Snyder. Richard um, tends to favor other media sources for his advertisements, so we don't have the whole story on that. <laughs> um, but, uh, Richard, if you'd like to come on and talk about your products, um, let us know. Occasionally there'd be some supply issues with the the ones from Ed Snyder. They didn't seem to last long in terms of not being available, but there were a few times here and there. So I'm not really sure if that was the motivation or if there's something else. I mean, it looks like essentially the same design, just produced in a, a black solder mask. Um, but, um, you know, so I don't know if there's any advantage to, to buying um, a, a Boys on Tech card versus a uh, Ed Snyder card. They both do support their stuff or whatever, so your mileage may vary, but I think they should probably just go with whoever's got one available when you need it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's um, what it comes down to is availability. Right. Well, I don't know how the supply or, or the demand, I should say. I don't know if the demand is still strong for them or not. Uh, yeah, you'd think it'd be getting saturated at this point, but who knows? Just the, uh, you the would think so, but well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, a lot of people would have more than one machine and maybe maybe think that it's worthwhile to have more than one SEC. All right, uh, this next news article is from uh, myself. 
uh, Neil Blanche. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of cool to do my own here. Uh, I'm producing uh, two games, actually, on uh, ROM cartridge. Uh, the first game is 3D Monster Maze. And it's a brand new game for your Coco uh, from Evan Wright. Uh, Evan has done a few games now for the Coco. He's done uh, Hunt the Wumpus, uh, which is also still available, and uh, Flooded. <laughs> so that was his first game. So that, now he's on to his third game, uh, 3D Monster Maze. So it is uh, ready and available. If uh, you're interested, you can reach me at uh, on the show here, neil at cococrew.org. Uh, and the next game I'm producing is uh, it's a it's a reprint um, for Rick Adams. It's his game Bomb Threat, and it's on a yellow cartridge. And it uh, comes complete in the uh, both games come complete in the uh, box, the uh, TRS-80 box, just like uh, back in the day from Radio Shack. So uh, yeah, both those games are available. If you're interested, uh, reach out to me. Yeah, I was going to comment on your uh, cartridge colors. They're looking bright. Yeah, just trying to do something a little fun, you know. Uh, Mm-hmm. Keep them a little different. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah. Speaking of that, uh, 3D Monster Maze comes on uh, two different colors, so you can get a translucent, um, see-through kind of plastic, or a, a deep blue. They both seem cool. to work nice with the uh, labels. So. so I like to keep the cartridges going. Good work. All right. Next uh, news article is from uh, Sierra and Ascom. This game, I remember we uh, we talked about this before. It's uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Wait, there's more. It looks like he's got a, um, it's an anniversary edition. It's a new version, re-release. First one was he, like 2017, it looks like here. He's done some uh, a new version, I think, some fixes here and there. The biggest thing, if you read down, that's, uh, he's got a, a ROM image available that you can put, put into a, um, a Game Master cartridge, and yeah, it will use, use the game, the, the audio hardware there to produce a, a soundtrack. So pretty cool. Yeah, that is. Look at the pictures there. When it's um delight for the eyes, shall we say? Right. Um, and uh, it's pretty well done game. It's kind of neat. It's like four players are on the same screen simultaneously. It's a neat a neat way to play. The other thing to mention too is uh he's re uh, he's released this on uh, cassette tape. That's awesome. Yeah, he did originally cool. release on cassette. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, original cool. artwork in there and the, the tapes. It's uh, very professional looking. All right. The next news item is the best easy way to capture analog video. It's a little weird by Technology Connections at YouTube. This is a YouTube video capturing video with a USB <laughs> 3.0 HD capture device. Well, that's what it does. He goes through and shows, you know, kind of traditional composite video captures or whatever. From, from VHS and kind of, he basically says, well, I remember VHS wasn't that great, but it really sucked this bad or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah, so he's using, a, uh, he's using like a uh, a composite audio video to digital converter of some kind. Yeah, so, so he's converting to HDMI and then back from HDMI, or doing the capture on HDMI. And something about that combination of encodings and decodings and whatever Suits his eyes a little better, I guess, is what it comes down to. You get, uh, it looks like the videos come out a little bit crisper. The colors are out, or come out a little bit more bright or whatever. Kind of like washing uh, clothes with gain instead of the bargain detergent. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I don't know how much credence to give it, but this guy does. I mean, he has a lot of videos about making videos. You know what I mean? About he yeah. seems like whatever the video version of an audio file is, it seems like that kind of a guy. 
Mm-hmm. And so if he says that this helps get better captures from VHS or other analog sources, uh, then maybe it's worth looking at. Maybe it'll help out. Yeah, so I've done this before. You know, you've got old VHS tapes that you want to, you know, digitize so you don't have to carry around the VHS anymore. I'll have to look at this. This looks like an interesting video and probably would be applicable to doing stuff with the Coco 3 as well. Yeah. All right, the next news item is designing 3D printed enclosures for, is that KiCad PCBs? Yeah. By Tom Norty at Hackaday. I'm not sure what KiCad is, but it looks like he's doing some type of a, uh, a 3D printed enclosure. Well, KiCad is a, um, you know, it's an open source, well, literally a PCB design tool, tool chain, whatever. And it's got schematic capture that then feeds into a PCB layout. And then in the PCB layout tool, there's a, you know, kind of a viewing option where you can visualize your card, um, not only, you know, the actual, this is what the layouts look at, will look like, but you can actually visualize it with the components in place. Mm-hmm. There's a 3D aspect to it. You can then, you know, turn it around, look at it from the back, all that kind of stuff. He's taking that output and then feeding it in to this other tool that helps you design plastic boxes to 3D print around it. Right. <laughs> so you could you could kind of get an idea for how the different components are going to stick out and obstruct or whatever. Right, right, which I'm sure are 3D printing of people in the audience or in the, the community like John Strong, for example, can probably tell you all about how it, it you know, it looks like the PC the PCB is going to fit, but when you try to put the uh, yep. lid on the case, and sometimes the capacitor stick up too high, that sort of thing. Yep, yep, makes sense. A good uh, good way to prototype that out. You know, you and me, we've been together for a long time, and when you're working so hard, things can get a little hot, and you've got to find a way to cool it down. Cool down your color computer with the Cocoa Cooler from REM Industries. It brings down the operating temperature to ambient, regardless of accessory load. Reduces temperature of the entire computer, not just the SAM chip. Easy one-minute installation, and it's just $39.95. And now offering the Cocoa Cooler 2. It's the same price and the same fit for the color computer too. Don't let your color computer get too hot. Cool it down with the Cocoa Cooler. For faster service and money order or certified check, add $2 shipping for continental U.S., add $4 shipping for Alaska, Hawaii, Canada, and APOs, add $15 shipping for overseas, add $3 for 220 to 250-volt model. California residents add 6.5% sales tax. We'll ship COD on USA shipments only. All merchandise shipped from stock. Cocoa Cooler is a product of REM Industries Incorporated, Chatsworth, California. If you are a fan of the TRS-80 color computer, then you won't want to miss Coco, the colorful history of Tandy's underdog computer from CRC Press. Follow the evolution of the color computer from the early beginnings of Project Green Thumb and Videotext terminals to the Coco 1, MC10, Coco 2, and Coco 3. Follow the rise of Rainbow Magazine, Microware, and the Coco community at large. Get the inside story from Tandy engineers, constantly challenged to reduce cost and increase capability. If you own a Coco, you should own this book, Coco, The Colorful History of Tandy's Underdog Computer, written by Boise Pete and Bill LeJudas. Available now at Amazon.com.
All right, the next news item is Reversi and Super Basic on the Color Computer by Jerry Stratton. So it looks like Jerry has a blog post with a lot of detail about how he wrote this game. Quite interesting. I'm just perusing through it. Looks good. Seems to have some pedagogical value, if you will. So, Yeah. Well, I thought uh, Mike might have some comments on the Super Basic aspect. Did you get the book that he wrote, Mike? Yes, I've got the book, and yeah, I thought that was pretty cool that he's uh, continuing with it and doing other things in uh, in Super Basic. So, yeah, pretty cool. And you know, he goes on to talk about how it's uh, it's kind of generic, where it's not dependent on um, specific computers, just using text characters. So, uh, made it real easily easy easily adapted. These old Basic books, um, you know, those kind of generic programs in Basic that you could get back in the '80s. They can be um, useful fodder for any kind of compiler style of project. <laughs> Just, you know, I want to test out, I've got a tool that works with basic source code. I want to make sure it works on all of it or as much as possible. <laughs> it's kind of cool to take computer, old computer game books and whatever and run some stuff through them. And yeah, a lot of it's just plain text or whatever, but um, it, it definitely runs through all the, you know, how to for loops work and how to, how do if statements work and all those sort of things? So that's kind of yeah. cool. The, the next item, in fact, is related to this convert PC basic code to TRS-80 extended color basic. Again, Jerry is uh, talking about how to take original code written in PC basic and bring it over to do a Cocoa translation by hand. So another good aspect of this article. Very good. Work. Yeah. All right. Pretty the next. Pretty. Next news item is Rally SG is based on the arcade game Rally X from Namco by Nick Marentes. This looks like a new game that Nick wrote for the Coco 3. Uh, this is the first time I'm seeing this. Been out a week or two, not a super long time. You know, it's a semi-graphics, um, he says 64 by 64 resolution. This SG-8 is what he's using. It's a semi-graphics game. I mean, it's essentially a low-res graphics game. But it's Rally X, and you know if you're familiar with Rally X, or it's a you know a clone or whatever Rally X, it's almost like a marble maze kind of you're racing around in, and so you don't need a lot of super high risk stuff. I mean, it's not like you're gonna you're not gonna look into the driver's eyes. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're gonna see a block for the car. Right. Um, I haven't played it. It looks okay. Uh, if you like Rally X, you'll probably like this game. It certainly makes sense if you're gonna. I mean, basically scrolling the entire screen in, I guess, in four different directions. If you're going to scroll uh, the whole screen, or at least in the non-score version of the screen, part of the screen, uh, you want to limit it to the amount of data you have to move. And so using the semi-graphics um, format for that makes a lot of sense. Very cool. There is a, a video available at the link if you want to watch it. Um, won't do much good on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> you can go and check it out. He's asking five. five bucks or something for it. Yeah, five bucks. Yeah. Yeah, very. And good. it runs on the one, two, and three, which is kind of nice. And uh, yeah, that is nice. It, Nick, it's not too late. Uh, this should be released on a cartridge. Yeah. Yeah, we can certainly get it on a cartridge. It wouldn't It'd be a be big nice. deal as long as you haven't painted yourself in a corner in any specific way, which most of you probably haven't. But uh, <laughs> just a caveat, <laughs> just in case. Um, but yeah, we'd love to get it on a cartridge if that, if you'd be interested. And if you want one that plays music, we can get you on one of those cartridges. Uh, of course, you have to get some musical content, but I'll bet we can figure that out, too. This one is from Luciano Scharf. Another CP400 recovered, working perfectly after general cleaning. 
Uh, this, is a, this is a pretty cool one. This is the Brazilian company uh, Prologica, the CP400, which is a clone of the color computer. This link, it's got a, a big picture library that's worth looking at. I've, I've got a soft spot for the CP400. It just always looks kind of cool, as, as well as the CP450, which is the disk drive. So uh, he just goes through getting a, a grubby, non-functioning CP450. He tore the whole thing down, took all the boards off of the disk drive, and he had to replace the, uh, the floppy disk controller chip. That's really was the main thing that was wrong with it. Cleaned it up, put it all back together, and works great. He's got some video of that. Definitely cool to see. Uh, these don't come up very often on eBay, <laughs> in my no. searches anyway. <laughs> yeah, very rare. Yeah, so Worthy pretty effort. cool. This next one is from Robin Harris, adding a serial interface, the MC6850. So this is pretty cool. This is an article talking about how most people would go with the 6551 because it was easier to work with, but he was unable to get those at a good price. So he had the more basic MC6850, which goes through building a serial interface uh, circuit with the 6850, which takes a little more muscle and uh, work, but the uh, results are good. Now, this is the same guy that I had a link for in, in my section about that's making a 6502-based uh, board, homebrew board. Now, the 6850 works fine for serial stuff, but it's a little more complicated or a little more, a little less flexible a chip, but basically what it amounts to. And so you need to work a little bit harder on the clocking for the uh, bit, bit speed and uh, selection. Also, of note, the 6850 is a chip that's in use in, in the, um, the MIDI interfaces that are in the community for the GoGo. If you want to know how those are working, um, this, uh, this will explain at least how the chip itself is working in those. <laughs> so, very cool. This article is from Swastik Braunwall. Is C still a higher level language? And this is yeah. kind of a, a discussion board and <laughs> uh, pretty entertaining. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I guess it depends. Uh, the general gist is, well, it depends on your perspective. If you're using assembler, C is a really high level language. If you're using Swift, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they got to that point pretty quick in the discussion. Almost, almost disappointing how quickly they got to that, to <laughs> that reasonable <laughs> truth. But yeah, if this was a if this was a programming podcast, we might would have saved this for our own discussion. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's at least somewhat related since we have C for the uh, for OS nine and whatever. But yeah, I remember definitely when I was in the the fifth grade or something, C was a high level language. You know, it was a big time. It's like when I learn. D or Pascal, and then, you know, can control the world. <laughs> but uh, it's funny now, you know, 30 years later, or however many years later it is, and um, more than that, um, that uh, this is a question that's it's not unreasonable to ask, and it's not even just the snot-nosed kids coming straight out of college asking it, but there's actually people who actually have some experience under the belt uh, asking this sort of stuff. Um, so you can't just slap them and tell Junior to sit down. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, it might be an interesting discussion to read or, or participate in for some members of, of the audience. So there you go. And if nothing else, it's a marker for where we are in the development of computers and technology uh, overall. I agree. A lot of great discussion could come out of talking about that. 
All right, our final article is from Josh Dersh, or Dersk, I'm not sure which it is, but he's from the, uh, it's about the closing of the Living Computer Museums and Labs in Seattle. Uh, this is definitely worth a read. Josh was an engineer working there. He was one of the people maintaining and restoring a lot of these old computer systems. As you know, it was closed down because, due to COVID in the spring. That pretty much was the death knell for it. They weren't able to uh, reopen. So they've let their employees go. And Josh was talking about his, his last <laughs> time shutting down the computers, leaving it for good. The basic people that own the museum have said it's shut down, but they haven't said it's shut down permanently. Uh, so it's kind of a question mark there on uh, what will happen in the future. But uh, definitely a, a good read about the Living Computer Museum and Labs. Yeah, that's sad. Um, certainly hope that it might come back someday. Hard to tell at this point. It's gone long enough. People have been laid off, sent home, gotten other jobs or whatever, maybe. You know, it's just sort of a shame. I'm sure for this guy, it must have been a dream job, and uh, his dream job is gone. And, you know, some people say, well, boo-hoo, we don't all get to work our dream jobs. And, and that's kind of valid, if a little petty. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, cool. yeah. but uh, it's the place I would have liked to have visited. Not going to get that chance now. So it's. Uh, I hope there's still room in the world for this kind of stuff uh, going forward. Uh, we're always in that kind of how long is our hobby going to actually live? It's kind of indeterminate. This could be something that, you know, there could be people playing with these machines when, when the machines are 80 years old. Or it could be that in 15 years we're all bored or dead and nobody touches our stuff except to carry it to the to the landfill. There's probably something in between those two, but uh, it's hard to tell exactly where it lands. How's that for excitement, huh? <laughs> All right. Talk about ending on a great note, huh? <laughs> yeah. Full of happy times. Like yeah. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of people say I'm too negative sometimes. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, why don't we uh, – that, uh, that constitutes the end of our listings for news. So why don't we take a little break, and uh, we'll be back with uh, a little feedback. New from Bumblebee Software, it's Color Speak, the easy-to-use color computer voice synthesizer. Greetings, everybody. I am a speech synthesizer. The ColorSpeak voice synthesis cartridge works with all color computers, 4K through 64K, and all versions of BASIC. That's because ColorSpeak has its own internal 2K of RAM, and all of the software required is stored on its own onboard ROM. Just plug it into your color computer, power up, and begin using ColorSpeak. ColorSpeak features text-to-speech mode, text-to-speech, phonem mode, inflection mode, and spelling mode. From BASIC, simply assign a string of text to the talk dollar sign variable and call the USR routine to speak it. How are you? Color Speak includes user manual, phoneme dictionary, cartridge pack, and demo tape. Just $169 from Bumblebee Software. Unlock the real power of your Coco with great deals from Danisoft. Like Big Basic, it allows you to create programs up to 470K. Just $39.95 US, $46.50 Canadian. Or, Big Gram Disk, get the speed of working with programs and data in memory. You can format, copy, backup, just like a real disk drive. Just $12.95 US, $14.95 Canadian. See our ad in Rainbow Magazine. When you think Coco, think great deals from Danisoft. We're located in sunny, Mississauga. Coco Cruisers, welcome back. We've got a, 
Well, a little bit of a different feedback segment today. We've got one uh, one item from uh, a, a a listener that may turn into a bit of a discussion item. I think we're going to launch a uh, a little bit of a new feature here as well. So, <laughs> all right, we'll start on. We we have a, a feedback item from a Robert Murphy. Uh, it's become a one of our most prolific feedback fans. <laughs> we'll always love to hear from you, Robert. So he says um, there really should be a PayPal donation and or Patreon link to let folks give back for the show. And uh, so implying that um, we could get to collect some donations or whatever. Here's, so here's my statement on that is that the show doesn't really cost us. It costs us time, but not really money, except to the extent that time is money, Right. I think really if you're going to try to compensate us with money for our time, we're not going to collect anywhere near the amount of money we need for that. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and so it's really our little gift to the community, and it's not that much money, and it does help that uh, Diabreer sponsors the show, so we don't have to pay for any kind of hosting. So that's that's good stuff. That helps a lot. Otherwise, I don't really know what we would do with any money that you would give us for the show. You know, we all could uh, go out and buy, you know, expensive microphones or expensive speaker setups or, I don't know, um, you know, audio switchers or, or green screens or something like that. <laughs> um, green screen won't do much good for our audio podcast, but, you know, that kind of stuff. And I guess there might be some other shows uh, that have done that sort of thing, but I don't think it suits the personalities. Um, uh, I don't think it suits the personality of our show or of our host very much. To be honest, if any of these guys come and say, "Hey, I need I need to buy a bigger microphone," I'll say, "What's the matter? Your paycheck didn't come in." <laughs> um, so, so I don't know. I mean, some people collect a, a sort of equipment and whatever, take pride in it, and. I kind of take pride in the fact that I'm using my laptop microphone, and it seems to work okay. So if you don't think my laptop microphone is good enough, well, that might be a good feedback item to send. Not you, Robert, specifically, but anybody else listening. If we, if you think we need some better equipment uh, for quality or whatever reasons, that would be a good feedback item to submit. But in terms of uh, having a way to, to donate money or, or whatever, I'm just not sure how we would use it. I don't think we're hurting for money for anything we want to do with the show. Uh, any of you guys disagree? No, it's a yeah. nice thought, but uh, but yeah, right. we're uh, yeah. we're self-sufficient and we're here because we love the cocoa. That's it. Exactly. Right. I think that's that's sort of how I would say it. It's very nice to think about that, but uh, this is our way of giving back. So, all right. As for our new feature, we thought we would uh, try to. Um, well, maybe inspire a little extra feedback uh, and give a little guidance for people who might be too shy to come up with their own topics or or um, maybe it's a gateway and you, you answer our, what we're going to call our question of the month and then also follow on with, uh, with that out of the way. I also wanted to say this and talk about, you know, what a great voice John has or something like that. <laughs> so we're going to call this the listener question of the month. And so this month, we are offering this question. So, listeners, the question of the month is, when do you prefer to use an emulator instead of real hardware? When do you prefer to use an emulator instead of real hardware? So we're not asking, do you prefer XROAR or, or um, MAME or 
or VCC or whatever, we're just saying, when would you rather pop up with the with an actual emulator? Now, it might be that you want to use a feature for a certain thing that only one emulator has, and that's that's worth mentioning if you if that's your situation. But just to inspire some feedback, when do you prefer to use an emulator? Go ahead and hit us back. That's feedback, F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K, at cococrew.org. Let us know, when do you prefer to use an emulator rather than real hardware? Uh, in the Coco world. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, well, that's, uh, that's our feedback for this month. So uh, why don't we take a little break, and uh, we'll be back with uh, well, some sort of host discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special guest in the studio with us today, the world-famous Blaise Pascal. Mr. Pascal, thank you so much for joining us today. Tous les plaisirs est pour moi. I'm so sorry, the pleasure is all mine. So, is it true that you invented one of the first digital calculators? Ah, uh, yes, the Pascaline. My father was a tax collector, and he needed a faster way to make the necessary calculations. Don't get me started on French monetary structure. No, me bon. And you are also well known for your inventions such as the syringe and the hydraulic press. Yes, yes, you embarrass me, of course. I did a lot of uh, stuff, as you say, but let me tell you what I am most impressed with. What would that be, Mr. Pascal? Deft Pascal, a color computer with as little as 32K of RAM, can be used to develop software using the programming language named after myself. I'm not following you. Pascal Workbench provides a complete development environment for your color computer. Edit your Pascal source code, compile it, and then run it. C'est très facile. Don't forget the excellent debugger. You can set breakpoints, examine variables and memory locations. You can even singly step to your code. Très bon. That is impressive. Oui, very impressive. Well, folks, there you have it. Pascal on Pascal. Pardon? Are these donuts for anyone? Sure, help yourself. Where are you off to next, Mr. Pascal? I have spent much time studying probable outcomes. Time for some applied science. I'm headed to Vegas, baby. Time to redefine Pascal's wager. Deft Pascal for the TRS-80 color computer. From Deft Systems Incorporated. Fred. Yeah? Remember when I wanted to run the business on our color computer? Yeah. And you said it was too hard to move back and forth through all those different programs. Yeah. And you said all the software would cost $1,000. Yeah. Well, you want to hear something? No. VIP Library integrates all the applications we need, and guess who sells it? Tiny Tim. No, SD Enterprises. Swell. All six VIP applications are combined onto one disk. VIP Database, VIP Writer, VIP Spell, VIP Calc, Terminal, and Disk Zap. So? So we can do mail merge. Finances, correspondence, all with VIP library. Yeah? Yeah. And it's not a thousand bucks. It's just $169.95. Wonderful. Finally, we'll have time to go see a movie. No. VIP library, the only integrated application suite your Coco will ever need. All right, Coco Cruisers, welcome back. We're going to have a little host discussion on sort of a topic, um, not quite du jour, but uh, relevant to the time. Um, without relating to either COVID or to riots in the street. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, a good thing. I mean, it could relate to rioting, I suppose, but it's not in this case. <laughs> so we have a tweet from, um, uh, not directed to us, but just in general to the world, from a Josh Malone. 
And so his tweet says, a so, dot, 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 all the things that, quote, belong in a museum are somehow safer than with private collectors, question mark. And he says, if the LCM plus L, that's living computer museum and labs, can go poof, I'm not sure that that belongs in a museum is quite a valid cry anymore. And so, of course, we're talking about uh, some people, it's not that uncommon for people to think that certain things are kind of, are so important or so rare that it's not appropriate just for any old person to, to that has a, to write a big check and pick it up and carry it away with it. And so, so in the greater retrocomputing community, this might include, say, like an Apple One, which there's only, you know, a, a handful of them still in the world. Um, it's a little more than a handful, but um, there's only a few of them. I'm not sure any, those are kind of put on the pedestal quite to the extent of only museums should ever have them. But there might be something like that. But in the Coco world, I'm going to pick on Boise a little bit and say, well, so um, maybe that um, Coco 4 mock-up thing is just one of a kind. If it got dropped and broken, it'd be gone forever. I'm not sure it has the same importance as some other things because it's so one of a kind. But if you attach that, was there ever going to be a Coco 4 from Tandy um, uh, thinking to it? Maybe it is so rare that some people might think, well, instead of just sitting in um, Boise's garage down there in Louisiana, maybe we should put that in the Smithsonian or something. <laughs> now, the Smithsonian may not want it, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was not unreasonable to think. It should be in a museum or whatever, right? But, but what happens if you put it in a museum? I mean, we've already seen this not that long ago with a museum um, up near Asheville, I think, that, that burned down. Oh, yeah, that was Right, sad. yeah. So, you know, it belongs in a museum. So are there things that belong in a museum in the retro computing world, or particularly the, the cocoa corner of the retro computing world? And if so, what are they? And then how do you answer the fact that museums seem to be having financial troubles or burning down or whatever, just like anybody else's house might? Um, Granted, they'd be slightly less likely to be stored in a basement that floods or something like that if they're at a museum but rather than a house. but not impossible that they could still be damaged. Hmm. Any thoughts on that? Well, you picked on me, so I guess I'll speak up. Okay. As someone who collects or has a collection of rare items in the cocoa world, um, I'm kind of torn by this because obviously I know how to take care of the stuff that I have and I keep it safe and in the climate control environment, etc. But at the same time, I think these kinds of pieces, like the piece you mentioned, need to be seen, right? not necessarily put in the hands of a private collector. There's a risk whether you put it in a museum, as you noted, or a private collector has it. So I'm not sure what the best answer is. I think these museums will eventually open up again. They're not going to go away forever. Obviously, no one's really going to a museum at this point anyway. So if something is in my in my office under a vinyl wrap or it's in a museum where nobody can go anyway, what's the difference? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, I think uh, there's another thing at play here. There's, it's almost kind of an anachronism, the museum concept, because we've got everything on the Internet. I mean, you pretty much can have the equivalent. You can even tour most museums through the Internet. And I think uh, the fact that you can make these things available, as you have, you've made it available in your book, you've, you've uh, you know, 
you'll probably feature it at some point in your uh, cocoa collector series. Yeah. Your, uh, your your cocoa four. So you're protecting it. Your and to some degree, it belongs to you. I mean, I understand that you want to make it available to the uh, the greater cocoa community, but uh, uh, but you are doing a, a good job of uh, you know being curator for that. And we know where it is, and we know that it's safe. And if you did give it to a museum, you could sit on a shelf for 15 years before anyone decides that they're going to display it because there's exactly. so much to show. They have to exactly. fight for a window of time to display your item. So uh, in reality, uh, when things are in, in an individual's hands, you probably have more access to it over the Internet than uh, than you would uh, at a museum. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, and um, it's kind of made me think uh, – well, I don't know if, if anyone else ever heard someone say that uh, something to the effect of that the um, the the ideal form of government would be uh, an enlightened dictator, you know, somebody who has absolute power to do exactly the right thing and does it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, it's completely impractical because none of us are enlightened enough, I guess, to do that. But and or at least nobody who could would be able to, to uh, agree on who the dictator should be. So maybe it breaks down there, but uh, maybe the perfect situation for this is someone who is a private collector who can decide to move to take something out and move it around and take it to live events like Cocoa Fest or Tandy Assembly or whatever, put things on display where people that who know what they are, who can appreciate them, can see them, maybe even touch them. That's a risk in and of itself too, right? Well, of Getting course it is. But... Back and forth and stuff. It is, but maybe that's the best situation. Um, you know, they put these TV shows on, like, the Learning Channel or whatever, that's called, like, Mysteries of the Museum or whatever, where they'll, they'll go into some, especially some backward or unknown museums, you know, in the middle of the country somewhere and say, well, they've got this display here, and it's got, you know, Paul Bunyan shoelaces or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like, well... These really are the shoelaces that Paul Bunyan were wearing when he captured Babe the Blue Ox, or, you know, and of course I'm <laughs> taking a little liberty with the truth or whatever, but you put something in a museum that nobody can go to, then you might as well have thrown it away, right? Uh, or not much worse than that, uh, or not much better than that. And like you say, the, the, the risk that I think most people think about when they, oh, we're going to let some private collector, some private capitalist come and use uh, the money he stole from the proletariat uh, to uh, to pay for something and then squirrel it away and no one ever sees it again. Right. <laughs> um, um, obviously, these things can happen when we have people who own items. But, you know, if we did have, you know, if we could somehow summon somebody from the Smithsonian to come to Cocoa Fest and, and, and pick up an item or two, then they'd probably head right back to Washington and find the deepest, darkest corner of whatever museum or whatever warehouse still has a, a space on a shelf, and they'd put our beloved Cocoa stuff on that space, and that's where it would sit for the next 50 years. So how would that help anybody, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going with the private collector. See, the thing, I, I've thought about the museum. I, I'm actually, I was toying the idea for the last couple of years of opening up an exhibit at the local museum here just in town in my city mm -hmm. but the problem is with that it's such a limited audience so it's just kind of like what you guys are saying that not a lot of people are gonna you're not gonna get a lot of traffic for it you know and you have to have people that are interested in it but i think by taking it around to you know retro computer shows 
that sort of thing, you know, you know doing a display, it's going to get more exposure. And I also believe that a private collector is going to take better care of the stuff. Because, I mean, you, you own it. It's yours. You, you kind of have an attachment to it. Otherwise, I mean, if you didn't have the space or, you know, you got out of the hobby, maybe, you know, then, then you know, donate, you know, to a museum or something or, or another private collector. But uh, that's I'm going with that. Certainly, when you own a piece that's rare, I think you should you have an obligation to uh, take care of it. Uh, yeah. You don't have to take it with you to Cocoa Fest if you don't want to. No. And I've done that one time, I think, with the Cocoa 4 and the Deluxe Cocoa. I think right after Bill and I wrote the book. Right. But uh, the motivation there was to show it off because no one knew about the Cocoa 4 especially. Mm -hmm. if you, I think if you document it well, you know, like do the Cocoa Collector thing that I'm doing, record it. Right. Show all the angles and it's there on YouTube for in perpetuity, then that's... Um, that's a good thing. For sure. Definitely. Because, I mean, you, you figure that Cocoa 4 got more exposure just from what you did versus sitting in a museum somewhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that covers it. Uh, this stuff is important to us, but there's not enough of us to mean that it's important to the country or the world. <laughs> and so you say some of this stuff may seem really important and rare or whatever, and I should be in a museum. But that doesn't make it important enough that the museum will actually put it on display or that anybody will go see it there, you know? Right, right. And, and and I'll just add another thing, is that the Coco is typically not the attraction for a computer museum. If it's not Commodore or Atari, I would worry that the Coco would not get the exposure or those pieces wouldn't get the exposure that... Uh... A lot of times even places that cover Tandy don't include the Coco just yep. as an oversight. That's right. Sure. And, I mean, the field gets really crowded, too, if you look at all the different computers from the same period. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I guess that's the thing. We just have to be our own museums. Pretty that's much. right. <laughs> yep. Pretty much. So then we just have to travel around and visit each other as much as, the, uh, as, much as we can with all the uh, social distancing restrictions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this used to be called computer festivals. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you guys have to come down and have some barbecue and uh, check out my pile. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, does that do it for this topic? That's it. I think so. All right, well, thank you, gentlemen, for another lovely discussion. And we'll just have to draw this one to close and uh, leave you to the rest of the show. Dino Wars. <laughs> 65 million years ago, giant carnivorous beasts roamed the earth, fighting for territorial dominance. The only rule? Survive. Each player controls a rampaging dinosaur. If you aren't quick, you'll find yourself ruthlessly attacked by your opponent. Develop your maneuvering skills. Then declare an all-out dino war on your opponent. Dino Wars requires a TRS-80 color computer with two joysticks. 16K of memory recommended. From Radio Shack. If you're looking for Radio Shack computers, peripherals, and software, there's no better source than Computer Plus. Computer Plus. Computer Plus offers a wide range of modems from Tandy, Radio Shack, and Hayes. Plus. Dot Matrix and Daisy Wheel printers from Radio Shack, Smith Corona, Epson, Okidata, Star, Panasonic, Silver Reed, and more. Plus. Color and monochrome monitors from Radio Shack, Amdeck, Taxon, and more. Plus. Computer Plus stocks a wide array of popular software titles for any Tandy computer. Plus. 
Computer Plus features the lowest possible prices, best warranties possible, knowledgeable and friendly service staff, timely delivery, and the convenience of ordering by phone. Find out for yourself why so many computer hobbyists and business professionals purchase their computers and peripherals from Computer Plus. Computer Plus. All right. Welcome, Coco Cruisers. Uh, This month we've got a little bit of a special treat for you, an interview with... uh, Someone from uh, back in the day, this time, instead of uh, someone that was uh, directly making products for the cocoa world, per se, or whatever, it's someone with um, more more of a retail perspective on that time period of our lives. So we've got with us uh, Mr. Fran Purcell. Hello, Fran. How are you? I'm fine, John. How are you? <laughs> Doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Uh, Neil's not currently with us, but we do have uh, Mike Rowan. Hello, Mike. Hello, everybody. And, of course, we've got Boise Pete. Hello, Boise. Hey, guys. Great to be here. <laughs> cool. Likewise. So, Fran, um, uh, so far I haven't mentioned, known you very long, but you don't seem very shy. So uh, I think we'll just start <laughs> by tossing it to you and letting you tell us a little bit about um, how you got involved in the, with Radio Shack or Tandy and Anything along those lines, it sounds like you were already a bit of a technical person who was uh, spending a lot of time at Radio Shack as a kid anyway. So um, go ahead and uh, start wherever you feel like, and uh, I'm sure we'll have questions from there. I guess back in the mid-70s, I'm going to say 1976, I began working at a local store called the Music Shack. It was a little record and tape store. And the gentleman who owned it, his name was Fred Brookings. He also did electronics. He did car stereos and home stereos. And um, I worked there for a year in high school. And uh, while I was in college, I worked there part-time. And in the mid, late 70s, probably 1977, we got a visit from someone who represented the Radio Shack franchise dealer division. They ended up coming in our store because the local drugstore who we went in first wasn't interested in becoming a Radio Shack franchise. So uh, he stopped in and gave us the pitch. We thought it would be a good line to add to the store. As far as franchises go, at the time it it seemed very affordable. For $5,000, they would come in, they would give you a big Radio Shack sign, they would help you with your advertising, feature you in their local flyer, set you up with their free battery card, and <laughs> uh, things like that. It was a great deal. So we, we took them up on it and got the Radio Shack product. This is obviously kind of pre-handy computers. Sure. Uh, a couple of years went by. They let us know that there was another local franchise available in the next town over, which was Air, Massachusetts. What they did is they went to small towns that were under 5,000 people and were seven or eight miles from a company-owned Radio Shack store because they didn't want to impact, you know, their corporate stores. Right, right, and, uh, right. You know, so they branched out and tried to hit these small, uh, these small towns, which, you know, they're not going to stick a Radio Shack store in a small town with 5,000 people. It probably isn't worth their while. But, you know, by focusing on existing businesses and, uh, you know, just want to add to the product line, it, it was a good fit. Sure. I mean, as far as franchises go, for $5,000, you really can't go wrong. <laughs> what, what, what year was that, Fran? That was in uh, 1977. 
just to clarify that, 1977, $5,000 then would be worth today $21,270. So basically right. close to four times the amount, I guess. Which, when you think about as far as a franchise goes... It's not a horrible fee, no. Pretty, no, it's, pretty cheap. And yeah, it's achievable, yeah. Because the cost of car. I mean, the other, the other nice thing about it is uh, they really had no control over your business. They just wanted you to represent their line in the way you want it to represent it and, yeah. you know, try to give them $10,000 a year worth of, worth of business. That's not too hard to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After I got out of college in 1978, another franchise became available in the next town over called Air, Massachusetts. And if you're familiar with Air, Massachusetts at all, it's right next to the Fort Devens Army base. So if you're at all familiar with retail locations around Army bases, uh, you're busy like two days a month. You're busy the first <laughs> of the month when the GIs get paid, and you're busy the 15th of the month when the GIs get paid. The rest of the time you're looking for something to do. So um, how I got involved with the computers is, while I was running that store, I had a customer that had bought a TRS-80 Model 1 and needed a disk drive for it. Radio Shack was backlogged, backordered three, four, five, six months on these disk drives. So I did a little research and found a company called the CPU Shop in <laughs> Charleston, Massachusetts. It was buried in the bowels of Charleston up by the Bunker Hill Monument. This company actually uh, went out and uh, manufactured like a case of power supply and a disk drive, which was, you know, Model 1 compatible. I hooked up with this guy, went to his place. It's kind of weird. You walk into this apartment and he's got like a machine shop set up in his living room. <laughs> he's got uh, an oscilloscope over here to uh, adjust the drives. We just started talking and uh, while I was there, uh, he was on the phone with a customer and I heard him say to the customer, no, I don't have any Radio Shack expansion interfaces. I just sell the drives. And after he got off the phone, I said, well, I can sell your Radio Shack expansion interfaces. So <laughs> this was probably 1979. This guy started buying expansion interfaces from me, and uh, his store did quite well. He ended up opening a retail store in Charleston which actually morphed into 11 or 12 more retail stores in New England. They ended up ditching the CPU shop name and they called themselves Computer City. It wasn't the Computer City owned by Tandy afterwards. This was right. a predecessor to that. He probably bought, he bought thousands of these expansion interfaces from me. I mean, the item retailed for $299 at the time. And what these companies did is they bought them inserted their own memory, which Radio Shack at the time was charging $300 per 16K. So he was able to offer these expansion interfaces, not as being a Radio Shack store, to go along with his disk drives. So it worked out really well yep. for him. Then I started thinking about it. I go, well, if this guy is doing it, then <laughs> maybe there's other people that want these. So I walked across the street to the local bookstore, and I bought any magazine that had anything to do with the TRS-80, like uh, 80 Micro and Kilobot and Byte Magazine. I went through all of these, and anybody who sold software or hardware for the 
TRS-80, I either called and introduced myself and told them what I could do uh, or sent them a letter. Because a lot of mail order companies back then didn't, believe it or not, didn't publish their phone number. It was just <laughs> just an address, you know, send yeah. your money here kind of thing. So I started selling not only expansion interfaces, but other Radio Shack products to these folks. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, the well-known people at the time, like uh, Scott Adams from Adventure International, he was a big software guy. He, uh, yeah. he was one of our customers. There was another gentleman from the Midwest called Level 4 Products. He was another big guy. Uh, Tom Mix Software was one of our customers. One of the customers I picked up happened to be a store in Milford, New Hampshire. He was a software publisher called TSE Softside, I believe. He had a retail store. It was called Hardside, I believe. He was one of my customers. One day when I was delivering stuff up there, I got chatting with the guy that worked there. He was interested in exploring other options, and uh, him and I said, gee, you know, you know, why don't we do something? So him and I uh, spoke to the owner of our company, Fred, and he gave us the green light. That's how uh, Computer Plus got started. Wow. You're right at the cusp of personal computers becoming popular. You, you got in just right at the right time. You know, every now and then you, 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 you luck out and you catch yeah. the wave just right. It was great timing. I mean, so, <laughs> so for for the listeners, you haven't brought this up yet, Fran. But what got me to find you was, and anyone who's listening to our podcast will know that the rainbow had in the very front page when you open the front cover, the first page you would see to the right was a an ad from a company called Computer Plus out of Littleton, Massachusetts. That ad ran for years and years and years. I bought two Coco 3s and a CM8. I should say my parents bought two Coco 3s and a CM8 from Computer Plus. And the thing that always were, was struck me was your prices were so much cheaper than the list price at any pretty much any Radio Shack store. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I do want the, the listeners to know that Computer Plus is, Fran, sort of what that was the company you were affiliated with, and that's kind of what contact what connected me to use the podcast. So. Right. This is very right. interesting now because this is what ties into to the cocoa and the rainbow. Right, right. Obviously, the rainbow came out after we went into business, but, I mean, we first advertised in 80 Micro and Byte Magazine and Kilobaud Magazine and uh, a few other magazines at the time. Then we connected with the first dedicated computer magazine I remember was Color Computer News. It was you know, a very small publication written by a gentleman named Bill Sias. I believe he was out of the Midwest. You know, we connected with him. The gentleman I was working with, his name was Jack Torres. He was the gentleman that used to work at Hardside who came to work for uh, Fred and myself. He had a very good background in marketing. His dad owned a disinfecting company called the Red Cross Nurse which supplied grocery stores. I'm pretty sure nationwide they supplied grocery stores with disinfectant products. <laughs> Jack was uh, very familiar with dealing with graphic artists and ad agencies and things like that. So, you know, I knew nothing about that. You know, we were a very good fit. I was more the, the sales technical guy, customer service guy. Jack handled all of the graphic design you know, obviously we talked about where we should put our ads and, 
you know, what the owner could afford. <laughs> it was just crazy. I mean, back then, um, everything was a challenge. I mean, um, even when we had to order our Watts lines, our 800 numbers, it took New England Telephone, which is one of the baby bell companies, a month just to tell us what our phone number was going to be. <laughs> and here we are, you know, trying to do ads, and we don't even know what our phone number is. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So they finally kind of verbally committed, we're pretty sure this is what you're going to get for a phone number, and we kind of ran with it. I believe our first ad was in uh, February of uh, 1981 in 80 Micro. Our Watts lines, our 800 numbers, didn't start working until two months after that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> They physically had to run wires from Lawrence, Massachusetts, which was like 30 miles north of Littleton, into Littleton to get a watch line. Wow. I mean, when you think about it, nowadays you just pick up the phone and you go, hey, I want a watch line. Um, you plug your Cat5 cable in and you have a watch line. I mean, it's... <laughs> right. They probably would say, what's, what's the hell is that? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just so... It's just so much easier. One day, Jack and I were sitting there. I mean, obviously, for those first two months, the only business we got were folks that didn't mind paying, you know, the dollar for the call to our, our standard non-toll-free number. You know, once the line started ringing, they, uh, I mean, they never stopped. Wow. So so I noticed on the ad there's an 800 number. I got to yep. ask you, friend, did you get kids calling saying, hey, my Coco does this. Why does it do that? <laughs> Did they do that stuff? We had an awful lot of uh, technical calls on our sales 800 line, but we always did our best to help people out. So, so yeah. I got to admit, I actually did that a couple of times. And the second time I did it, I think somebody basically said, hey, kid, this isn't for, this isn't for tech help. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been you that answered the phone. <laughs> Please call, please call our local number for any technical exactly. support you need, you know? <laughs> but uh, initially, if you look at our first ad, first couple of ads, maybe the first year of our ads, it lists an address of 245A Great Road in Littleton. And what that was, a friend of mine had a Texaco station, and attached to his Texaco station, he had a small retail store which he tried renting out and never worked out for people. It never worked out for him. But we actually rented this space from him. Just think about a, a 70s vintage gas station with your pumps out front. We're like stuck on the left of this building. The rent was 400 bucks <laughs> a month, so the rent was really cheap. Jack and I uh, were there for probably six or eight months by ourselves. Then we had to hire a couple of folks to help us out because it just, uh, it just got crazy. Something else we did when um, Color Computer um, News that Bill Sias was involved with came out, we, we talked to him and we said, hey, Bill, why don't you send us, you know, as many of your magazines as you want, a box of them, two boxes of them, whatever, and every cocoa we send out, we'll toss one in the box. So, you know, imagine getting a, a brand new cocoa one at the time and, uh, you know, there's not really a lot out there for it. All you have is like 80 micro, which was... You know, not really a Coco-dedicated magazine. And you get this, this magazine that just speaks about the color computer. 
Yeah, that's that's an awesome idea. You guys did that with the rainbow too, because when I bought my my Coco Three from you, well, my dad did in November of nineteen eighty six. The December nineteen eighty six issue of the rainbow was at the top inside the box when I opened up the box yep. of the Coco Three. I will never forget it. It's one of my favorite issues, and I'm sure yep. you guys did that for uh yep. for fall. Yeah, we uh, not only did it with uh, Bill Sias's magazine, but we did it with uh, Rainbow Magazine also, yep. and. Uh, yep. I know it helped their subscription. I mean, it helped everybody. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, it was great. That's kind of how it all got started. It kind of grew from there. You had mentioned in in other conversations I had with you that you attended Rainbow Fests. I did. Um, Take us back to that time. Like, for a lot of us, I I shared with you that I couldn't go because I was a kid. But what was it like whenever you went? How was it? What was the environment? What was it like for you guys? It was great. I mean, we obviously being on the East Coast, uh, we always did the ones in New Jersey. Uh, they were in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and Princeton, New Jersey. We did those um, all the time. We did the Chicago one a couple times. I mean, it was just so energy packed. Everybody there, exhibitors and customers, you know, all they cared about was was the color computer. I mean, it wasn't like a <laughs> a lot of computer shows from that era, like the Northeast Computer Show and things like that, they were so broad-based that, you know, they didn't really have a focus. But uh, this one was, was bang, focused, you know, right on the uh, right on the color computer. So it was, a, it, it was a really great crowd. You know, we had, a, we had a lot of fun. You know, good sales out of it as well. Tell us a little bit about the logistics of uh, getting to Chicago. So, being in Massachusetts, what we used to have to do was we obviously had a Radio Shack store, which we were separate from. We had to steal one of the employees that worked at the Radio Shack store (laughs) because, you know, myself and another employee from Computer Plus would go to Chicago. So, we had to leave some of our people back at Computer Plus to to run the business while we were gone. What we would do is we would... uh, you know, load up our 24-foot box truck, send it off to Chicago. And this was, you know, back before before cell phones and whatnot. <laughs> so myself and the other person who went with me were kind of freaking out on the way to the hotel. <laughs> Hope our truck made it. You know, our truck was supposed to be here three hours ago. It was crazy. Fortunately, uh, everything always worked out, and the truck and our product was there when we got there. Uh, wow. The ones in New Brunswick and uh, Princeton were a little easier because uh, myself and two other individuals drove down in the truck, so we right. you know, kind of knew where our stock was. <laughs> did, did you sell yeah. out at that show? You know, the only show I remember selling out of was the show that was right after the Coco 3 was introduced. That would have been 1986 Princeton, October 1986. Okay. So we had gotten, I think it was either two or three hundred Coco threes. You know, wow. we had a deal. We had a deal with people at the Radio Shack uh, local franchise office to even get them because wow. they were out, but they weren't really out yeah, in huge right. supply. Right. So um, we lucked out, and we ended up getting two or three hundred of them, and. Uh, you know, we went down there with a with a totally full truck between those and the disk drives and the uh, expansion interfaces and I mean Did the multi interfaces. 
anything we thought we could peddle for the cocoa we brought with us. And uh, <laughs> I remember, I think the show was three or four hours on Friday. We sold a hundred of them right away. I mean, Jeez. they were gone. <laughs> they were gone that evening. I mean, it wasn't only us selling them. Radio Shack was there and, right. and they had right. some, but they didn't have as many as us. So that kind of made us feel good. So, <laughs> um, so I think we sold them for $169 at the time. Yep. We, we sold wow. the, the, first, the first hundred on Friday and the other hundred or 200 was gone Saturday and we had uh, nothing none left to sell on Sunday. You, but, you must you know, have felt like a rock star. I bet you it's like women throwing themselves at you on the stage, right? Oh, go, go, free, go, go, free. I mean, it's like, uh, it's like people are just walking up. Yeah, I'll take two of them. I'll take three of them. Jeez. I'll take four of them. It was, uh, oh, wow. it was, uh, it was a good time. It was a good time. I'll bet. You, you mentioned $169. I'm looking at the Computer Plus ad in the December 1986 issue of the Rainbow, and that's exactly yep. what you were selling the 128K Coco 3 for. Right. $169. Right. How did you guys get – I mean, obviously you had a price advantage, right? There was you and there was another vendor in the Rainbow that was also a Radio Shack franchise, and I can't – I'll have to go find their ad. But neck and neck, you guys were always like, you know, quite a bit lower than the local Radio Shack. How did you do it? Would you just buy by volume, or what was the secret to getting that price down? You know, the weird thing about about being a Radio Shack franchise, a dealer, um, is everybody paid the same price. I mean, if I bought one cocoa or if I bought 100 cocos, they would be the same price. Radio Shack never gave us a better price than anybody else, which kind of leveled the playing field because – you know, we didn't have to worry what this guy was paying versus us because right. because we knew what he was paying. He was paying the same exact price we were. So, I mean, you know, it's like any other um, commodity item. We worked on very low margins. I think we made, you know, 10%. So on a $169 color computer, we probably made 18 to $20. Right. So it was very low margins, but... When you're selling two or three hundred of them, uh, you know right. that's okay. <laughs> did, did, that's you, did you upset the local, like the actual Radio Shack stores around you? Because I, I'll tell you that in the in the 1986 October 1986 Rainbow Fest that you alluded to, where you sold all those Cocoa Threes out, right. there was a round table at that event, and it was recorded, and we have the audio online. No and kidding. Barry Thompson from Radio Shack was at that round table, and someone brought up in the audience a question about buying a Cocoa 3 for less than the Radio Shack store sold it. And and Thompson alluded to the fact that there were some franchises that would undercut the price of the local company stores. But, right. you know, he, he felt like, well, you didn't get the same support or whatever. Obviously, he was given the party line as a Radio Shack representative. But right. You, right. You, no doubt you guys had to have, like, you know, raised the hackles on the local company stores that couldn't sell those products at the discounts you were selling them, right? Right. That's that. That's very true. I mean, when they bought it from us, remember the old Radio Shack receipts back in the day? They were they were actually handwritten receipts. You know, back yeah. in the seventies uh, and the eighties. Yeah. You know, when we took an order, you know, we wrote it on a regular Radio Shack receipt. It had our store name, our store number um, on the receipt. And uh, you're right. I mean, if a customer had an issue with their cocoa, like if you had a problem with one of yours, 
all you would have to do would be go into your local store and say, hey, I bought this from a Radio Shack dealer. Uh, yeah. You know, please fix it. Radio <laughs> Shack would fix it and uh, bill us for the repair. The other vendor, Fran, that was also advertising like kind of neck and neck with you all in the rainbow around 87, 88, that was competitive on price was a company called Micro World Computer Center out of uh, Wind Gap, Pennsylvania. They would... I would look at prices, and they were like they had Coco threes about the same price as you guys, you know, yep. Yep. you know, forty, fifty dollars cheaper than the company stores. Right, right, yeah. So, so we all paid the same, and uh, I think by then a lot of people tried to jump into the business we were in afterwards, but yeah. it may have been because we were established, and uh, you know, our ads looked better or whatever. But I don't know, we for yeah. eight or nine years was Radio Shack's largest dealer in the country. So I, I know wow. uh, I, I, I know we uh, were doing it right, you know. Well, you know, you guys had, at least in the Rainbow Magazine, right, which was, I know you mentioned Color Computer News, but as far as uh, subscription numbers, I think Rainbow had the, probably the largest amount. And you were right there in the front. When you lift that front cover up, there you are. So. Right. No doubt, you were in prime real estate in the magazine, and the right. the way that you structure your ads. And one of the questions I had was, when you look at a Computer Plus ad in the Rainbow, it's very distinctive, right? It right. says from Computer Plus to you, plus after plus after plus, and you've got right. six boxes, you know, three right. across and then three below with highlighted products. Then this beautiful list of here's everything from computers to printers to modems to software, and here's how much it costs. That's Who right. designed that ad for you guys? Is that some a design y'all came up with, or did somebody else bring that to you? Because it was used a lot in subsequent years. Right. Um, that was designed by a friend of Jack Torres's. Um, it was a graphic designer out of Milford, New Hampshire, that we used for all of our ads. This was back during you know the pre you know desktop publishing days. This guy actually. Yeah hand drew most of that ad. I mean, it was, wow. Wow. It was amazing. Jeez. I mean, he hand drew our logo because we, we saw some mock-ups mock of different logos and he actually hand drew the logo and uh, he was an amazing artist. Wow. I mean, as the years went on, I think the ad started off black and white and then, you know, as magazines started going more color, we added some color to it also, which, uh, yeah. which really brought the ad out. I'm looking at one of your ads from a Rainbow uh, 1985. Yeah. Uh, looking at the logo, and it's interesting. Below it, it says since 1973. So, remember the uh, gentleman I mentioned, Fred Brookings? Yes. He actually started that Music Shack store in 1973. And we said, well, we're not really lying because we're owned by this. I mean, we're owned by this yes, guy. True. <laughs> you know, we're owned by this guy who's, you know, who's footing the bill for all this. So, you know, let's put in since 1973 because that's when yeah. we really started. Yeah, and, that's when uh, started. And uh, <laughs> you know, that might have helped us too because people say, "Hey, look, these people have been around for five or six years." Uh, <laughs> I don't know what they were selling, but they've been around. <laughs> Another funny story about the address. If you look at our first ads, uh, you're going to see 245A Great Road. But on later ads, you're going to see 480 King Street. Yep. Remember you mentioned that there might have been some people in Radio Shack corporate that didn't really like us? 
But what had happened is somebody went into somebody with one of these ads and say, hey, who's this guy selling Radio Shack product at this address? Because there's no designated authorized Radio Shack store at this address. Uh-huh. So we got a call from our local sales office and they say, hey, look, you know, you guys got to pull your ads or you got to do something because Radio Shack Corporate doesn't want you advertising their product with a full warranty on a non-approved address. Right. So what we had to do is we had to change all of our ads to represent the actual address of the franchise, which was 480 King Street. So that's, <laughs> I mean, we, we ended up not physically moving there for a good number of years, but uh, our ads had to uh, had to reflect that uh, that address, or else we might have gotten in trouble. Another thing about your ad, I love the bullet points: lowest possible prices, best possible warranty, knowledgeable sales staff, timely delivery, and shopping convenience. It's like it. it really it was really a lesson in how you could put a, an effective ad together. Like if you've got prime real estate. Hey, show it off, baby. You know, right, you right. guys did it. Right. You know, plus the um, uh, the magazines were, uh, were very forthcoming about publishing uh, letters that were, you know, from happy customers of ours. You know, back in that, yeah. that time frame, when you got a letter to the editor that, that says you had great success with this company and they took good care of you, I mean – you know, forget the Yelp reviews and the Google reviews. I mean, that was yeah. that was yeah. that was gold back then. That that really helped our business because we did a good job taking care of people. We didn't uh, back then. A lot of mail order companies they would advertise a product, and legally they had 30 days to ship the product after it was paid for. But we never did that. Even if we had items on back order that we knew were coming in in three days. You know, we would not charge the customer until it was physically in the door and physically shipped. And, uh, you know, we just thought that was the uh, right way to do business. Yeah, and, so it saved you a lot of headaches. Uh, I mean, what's the sense of charging somebody for a $300 computer and, you know, making up excuses for a month why you haven't shipped it when you just don't charge their card until it's actually in your door? And, uh it was the right thing to do, and um, we did well by it. That prompted a lot of positive letters to Rainbow and some of the other magazines about our business practices, which made us feel good. That's awesome. Best customer experience or best customer have you had and worst customer you ever had? <laughs> um, you don't have to name names. No, no. The best customer... As far as quantity goes, there was a customer, I think he might have been in Montreal. He would actually go up to Maine on vacation and come visit us and fill up his van with computers. He probably bought 100, 150 computers off of us over the uh, – the, uh, wow. The time frame we were there. To resell? I don't really know. I don't really know if he was uh, driving them into Canada and reselling them or <laughs> what he was doing with them. But uh, he was probably the largest customer we had on a retail, yeah, not a wholesaler. 
the worst customer we ever had. I mean, like I mentioned, we did a really good job taking care of people. And um, the way I always looked at it was, what would I expect a company to do for me yeah. if I had a problem? We kind of flew with that. And most of the problems we had weren't really caused by us, but, you know, UPS stepped on a color computer or, or damaged the box. Or I remember one time we sent out a DMP 200 printer to a customer. This guy was actually very, very patient with us. So the guy gets this printer. He opens up the box and it was full of two by fours. <laughs> so what had happened was, it looks to me like at least somebody possibly at UPS might have needed a printer. And okay, <laughs> cut the printer out of the box and filled the, and took the time to cut the two by fours Jeez. perfectly square to fit into this box. Jeez. So the way UPS handles claims like that is, the customer called UPS. UPS picked up the box full of two-by-fours, brought it back to us. We then, in turn, you know, we sent the customer a new printer, obviously, once we saw it was full of two-by-fours. Right. And we had a deal with UPS um, loss prevention. Now, try, try convincing somebody at UPS that one of their employees put two-by-fours in this box and took the printer. <laughs> 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 they, they, they weren't too too keen on the idea. You know, fortunately for us, by then we had a very sophisticated shipping system where we put the box on the scale, we hit a button, it would weigh it down to the tenth of an ounce, and it would print the label. So we knew what the weight of the printer was when we shipped it, and while the guy was standing there, I, I said, well, put it on the scale, what's it weigh? And it weighed four pounds less than... Right. <laughs> yeah. I go, right. Well, Which is funny if you think about the, the printers of the day, which actually yeah, weighed I mean, four more pounds than a box full of Duba Force. Yeah, I mean, I mean, back in the day, they, uh, you know, they they were heavy, heavier than they are now, at least. Yeah. And uh, you know, we went round and round, and we uh, we finally ended up getting paid. But uh, that that was probably the strangest things that happened to us. <laughs> Looking at the list here, again, looking at the ad, you have products yep. from Tom Mix Software. You have VIP yep. Rider. You have yep. Max Fonts. You have Telerider. Yep. Did you have uh, relationships with these individual software vendors to sell their products uh, through we your did. I mean, I mean, we – did you know that Tom Mix was the guy's name? I, I never knew that. But Yeah, that, that yeah was, he was out of Michigan, I think, right? Yes, yeah. he was, yeah. yeah. I mean uh, – <laughs> I mean, I mean, we met him at one of um, the Rainbow Fest shows. I never knew that was his real name, but until I actually met him. But uh, yeah, we had uh, relationships with Tom Mix, with Colorware, yep. with all those vendors you see listed in the uh, in the ad. And you know, we you know we purchased a product that I don't know, maybe a, a thirty percent discount. We bought right. quantity of it, and you know, we typically discounted it ten or fifteen percent. Did you nurture those relationships, or did, would people actually approach you? Um, a little of both. A little of both. I mean, you know, if you get a, a, a couple of calls, you know, uh, you sell VIP Rider for 150 bucks, and uh, you don't have it, you do your best to find it, you know? But, right. Uh, we reached out to some of these people to sell their product, 
Uh, we also sold, you know, some third-party hardware. Yep, I see that too. Yep. Remember, um, there's a company yeah. called uh, Botech that used to make this really cool oh, yeah. Yeah. Cereal, yep. cereal to parallel <laughs> adapter. Yep. adapter. We sold um, we sold those for a good number of years. If you remember, the thing came in a in a little a little blue project box, which actually was yeah. a Radio Shack project box. Yep. It worked out well because we actually sold them the project boxes at a discount. They were, <laughs> you know, they were paying retail at their local Radio Shack, so we sold the project boxes to Botech, and uh, you know we, awesome, you know, we, and we bought the product uh, back from them. So, you know, Fran, I, I, I could imagine back then, this is my image of you back then. You know, you yeah. ever see those guys on the stock market pitch just, you know, throwing paper around? I can yeah. see with just $100 bills flying out your pocket with an apron, you know, just going back and forth. You must have been a wheeler <laughs> dealer kind of guy. <laughs> at, at, at the Rainbow Fest show, that was kind of a true story. I mean, I uh, bet. You know, uh, back, a, you know, back wow. in the uh, probably 83, 84 areas when things really started getting crazy. Uh, busy. Yeah. And, you know, by then we had seven people working for us, three women on the phones, a dedicated chipper receiver, a dedicated technical guy, and uh, Jack and I. So we did an awful lot with seven people. Yeah. And uh, uh, one morning my wife says, hey, uh, you were not only answering the phone in your sleep, but you were uh, telling somebody how to wire up a cable in their sleep. <laughs> that's when you know you need to take a vacation that's when you know uh yeah things got a little uh a little crazy and uh we had a hard-working uh, group of people and we we did well did you actually use any tandy computers in your to run your business well the thing about it is is um we did use a computer but we just used a computer to maintain a mailing list because there really wasn't any kind of software we could use to actually, this is back before Radio Shack was even computerized themselves. Sure, yeah. So, so in, order, in order for our customer to get their Radio Shack warranty, the receipt had to be handwritten on one of those old school Radio Shack three-part Receipts, wow. you know, uh, we kept the white copy, sent the yellow, the yellow one. one to the customer, right? To the customer, you probably still have those, Boise, right? Yeah. Um, right. Um, and so that was the only way we could do it. So wow. back then, even the credit card processing was totally different than it is now. <laughs> there weren't any oh, terminals. Yeah. You know, we had that old school imprint yep. machine. Yep. Mm -hmm. So right. what we would do is we would get a stack of uh, blank credit card receipts, run them all through the imprinter. And after he took all the customer information, their name, their address, their phone number, their credit card number, um, we actually had to rewrite that onto the credit card receipt. Then you don't get your money the next day like you do now. You had to take those hard copy receipts and, yeah. and mail them in. Right. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So, wow. I mean... Did you have to call for approvals on credit cards? We did. We did. Yeah. Um, time, time, time. I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is, they gave us this little um, newsprint pamphlet that we were supposed to look through to see if the credit card was stolen um, <laughs> beforehand. And if we looked through that and it wasn't in that, then we had to call for an authorization. 
yeah, so every one of those, we had to pick up the phone, and it was done with a human. I mean, we, we actually talked to a person to get the approval. Uh, American Express at the time um, was the only credit card company that offered address verification. So, you know, most of the people with American Express cards, they typically spent a little more than the folks with the Visa MasterCard. There's yep. no Discover back then. So we had to call and uh, verify the address and only ship to the, uh, the billing address. You know, for the number of credit cards we processed and for the, the handful of times that we got stiffed, it was very, very minimal, <laughs> you know. In terms of the Coco, the color computer line, yeah. uh, the computer, of course, the Coco 3 came out in 86. You mentioned that, that hot yeah. Rainbow Fest, right, where you sold out crazily. Yeah. Correct. Uh, a couple of years, three years later, the Coco 3, you know, starts to tail off in sales and kind of ends in 1990 or so. Yeah. How did Computer Plus's fate go along with that? Did you guys see a tail off in sales at some point with computers and how did that how did that play out over the years? It did have an impact on us. Radio Shack started doing some weird things with their computer line in the early 90s. They bought a computer company called Grid and yep. they had an amazing manufacturing facility in in Fort Worth which it was awesome. I actually, uh, we won a trip to Fort Worth because of our sales, and um, they actually let us tour the uh, the factory, and it was just amazing to see an American factory, you know, banging off these these Cocos and these other um, Tandy computers. But wow. a couple of years after that, they, I think they sold their um, computer manufacturing place to AST. That's right. They started kind of about the time Computer Plus closed. They started selling, um, I believe it was compact computers at their uh, right at yes. their retail stores. That's right. And um, but uh, the last couple of years we were in business, we were basically there um, selling whatever we could get for Tandy computers. I mean, they had a couple of uh, notebook computers that were doing okay. Uh, yeah. I know Tandy was the 3500 or the 2500. You know they were selling those to digital. They were putting they were putting people's names on on everything back then. <laughs> and, uh, it just kind of got all mixed up for you, or what, in terms of how you sold stuff? Or? Yeah, I mean by then um, we were down to four people. You know, people uh, people left, and we, they never got replaced, and and whatnot, and. Uh, when it finally ended up closing in um, in '93, it was just myself and one other person that was uh, there. Where right. is where where was Computer Plus in the '90s? So the Rainbow closed down in '93. Obviously, you sold more than just Cocos, but that was a source of revenue. How did you guys get into the '90s and beyond? Um, I think Rain Rainbow's last issue was what. Um, April and May of 93. Yeah, May 93, April 93, yep. We ended up uh, closing up in January of 93. Um, I do think a lot of that, we kind of made a decision from the get-go that we really just wanted to support Tandy computers and sell Tandy computers. Everybody was out there at that time selling IBM-compatible clones and things like that. You know, we just didn't want to get involved with that. So the last couple of years we were in business, uh, we basically just sold peripherals, 
you know, laptop computer, a desktop computer, candy hat to sell us. You know, yeah. and weird things started happening at Radio Shack too. I mean, we always dealt with a local sales office in Randolph, Massachusetts. They had a huge warehouse also in Randolph, Massachusetts, which stocked their top 600 items. So, you know, us being 30, 45 minutes away, we would place an order and drive down there and pick stuff up. But um, probably about a year before we closed, they actually closed the local sales office, which meant we had to deal with people we didn't know in Fort yeah. Worth. And they closed the warehouse. So all of our items were shipped, I believe, from their Pennsylvania warehouse. Well, I don't know. I think it's just um, you know a combination of um, them not coming out with new product, which people want it. Obviously, the fact that they chose to get rid of the color computer, that was probably, I'm going to say, half of our business. Wow. You know, wow. The, you know, that must have hurt. Was the color computer and the color computer line. Um, so that, that definitely hurt us. I mean, we hung in there selling what we could for as long as we could. but Yeah. That just goes to show the power of the cocoa, if you think about it. You know, I mean, think about that. 50% of your business was color computer? Yes, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's just astounding to me. Yeah. We sold a lot of them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We sold a lot of them. I, so I wish could, I had could... an, exact, an exact number on how many we sold. but uh... so, so I could see you burning $100 bills to light cigars and saying, this was a Cocoa 3. This was a Cocoa 3. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't own Computer Plus. Um, I work for a guy who who took really good care of me, and uh, he might have been uh, lighting cigars with hundred dollar bills, but it wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're not that great. I mean, it kind of flavors the cigar in a bad way. To be honest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so question about the logistics. So you know, being sure. here, I am right as a kid. My mom and my dad are buying products from you guys in the yep. south. Yep. Texas is just a state away. Yep. But. And I don't remember where they were shipped from, but you guys would actually ship them from Littleton to wherever, or you'd have the warehouse ship them? Oh, no. We uh, we would actually order the product from Radio Shack. The Cocos, the Coco 3s, when they first came out, were shipped to us from Fort Worth. But once they became more readily available, um, they were actually in stock at our local warehouse in Randolph, Massachusetts. Right. So, you know, we would place an order and go down to this warehouse and pick up what we thought we needed and bring them back to the shop in Littleton and, uh, you know, take the phone call, write the receipt, write the credit card receipt, uh, charge it off and uh, stick a rainbow magazine in it if we had any. That's right, yeah. And uh, ship it out. I mean, um, we we were really good about, um, you know, shipping product the same day or the next day that the order was placed. We had a lot of pride in that. You know, we didn't yes. want uh, people getting upset that they got charged two weeks ago and uh, yep. their computer hasn't been shipped out yet. So uh, we did a really good job uh, taking care of our, our customers. Hopefully we uh, we took a good care of your mom and dad when they You uh, did. You it. did. Two Cocoa 3s and a CM8. And I was going to say my Cocoa 3 was made in Korea, probably got shipped to the States in Fort Worth, I'm guessing, or some warehouse in South Carolina, probably made all the way to Massachusetts Got yeah. to you and Littleton just to come back down to the south. Yeah, yeah, to my yeah. House. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh, Radio Shack didn't do any drop shipping or anything like that. So um, yeah, 
You know, it's not like the uh, the warehouse situations now with Amazon and whatnot. Uh, oh yeah, everything's optimized yeah. to the hilt, no doubt. Yeah, we we physically uh, ordered the product and got the product and shipped the product. We didn't, uh, you know, I don't think we would have trusted anybody else to get in the middle. To be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was all uh, it was all done in house. Brian, what have uh, what have we not covered? What have what have we not asked you about that you thought maybe we would? Yeah, I think we we covered everything that I uh, had to say. I don't know if you guys have any other questions or whatnot, but uh, I've got one. It might be inappropriate, but since uh, <laughs> since you're a male and not a female, maybe it's not quite as inappropriate. I'm going to ask you okay. your age. And the reason why I'm going to ask you your age is because I'm looking at you on the, the video screen here, and it may not be perfect video, but you look like a spry young man. I would say you're about 45 years old looking at you. You look better than I do, but I'm guessing the math doesn't work out for you to be 45. So, so, so could you tell us how old you are? The, the math doesn't work out. I was actually born in 1958, so I'm 62. Okay. Well, that's that's not too old, but a little bit older than I think you look. So whatever you're doing, oh, well, it's well, working well, for you. you. Thank you. Keep, uh, keep eating those grape nuts. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> well, 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 you're seeing me from the waist up. I think I'll look worse uh, below. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> you still got most of your hair, at least, so that's pretty good. Well, I'm working on it, yeah. But, uh, I mean, I started working for the uh, in high school, and uh, Computer sure. Plus started in uh, 80. So I was, uh, I was 22. I was 22. 22, and, yeah, uh, 22. Started uh, started Computer Plus, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I have a question. Uh, what sure. are you up to these days? So when the the Radio Shack that owned Computer Plus went out of business in 1993, the owner Fred had some issues with the bank, which you know might have helped lead to our demise as well. The bank actually um, came in one day and uh, kindly asked us all to leave. Mm. So it was kind of surprising. The bank actually took over all of his assets. What happened after that was, you know, it's like, gee, what am I going to do? You know, I kind of been doing this most of my life. I really don't want to get a real job. Um, <laughs> so uh, what I did is I went to the bank and I go, hey, um, you know, what are you guys going to do with this Radio Shack store? And they said, well, why? I go, well, I'm interested in buying it. They came up with a number. And what I was hoping for was once I bought what was there, Radio Shack might consider reopening the franchise. Sure. But I guess there was a lot of bad blood between um, our owner and Radio Shack. So they didn't really uh, want to reopen that uh, as a Radio Shack store. What year was that, Fran? That was 1993. Uh, I ended up buying uh, what was left of it from the bank in 93. And uh, when I didn't get the Radio Shack dealership, I said, hey, you know what? I'm just going to try to make a go with this on my own. So I ended up um, stocking it with other people's pieces and parts and product. And uh, 27 years later, I'm still doing the same thing. So I guess I can't complain. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow. that's cool. That's fantastic. You know, so uh, when you walk into my store, you, you look on one side of it and you go, hey, those look just like the uh, 
the old gray Radio Shack racks from the, uh, the 1980s. <laughs> well, that's kind of because that's what they are. That's I what mean, they are. What they are. I mean, it's uh, the old uh, the old gray Radio Shack racks and. Uh, wow! Yeah, I remember those. <laughs> so what's the name of your store? Electronics Plus. Okay, Electronics oh, Plus. Get yes, the plus. Okay. Electronics. Yeah. Plus. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Wow. Fran. Really appreciate you talking to us. It's been very entertaining and informative. Really enjoyed it. Look, I, I really appreciate um, you guys reaching out. And, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I said a few things that will, uh, will some of some some of your uh, listeners might find amusing, you know. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, definitely appreciate you lot, taking you know, the time to speak to us. Oh, well, again, we appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Hope you have a, a pleasant evening, and, uh, well, again, thanks. Yeah, you too, guys. Yeah, take care, Mike, John, and Boise. Good night. Take care. All, All right. right. Thanks for having me, buddy. Bye-bye. The Dragon is back with 64K. Data Limited is proud to present the new Dragon 64. It has twice the memory of the Dragon 32, featuring a real serial communications port. Get your Dragon 64 today. Dragon Data Limited. Learn how to use your computer for more than just games with Hot Cocoa Magazine. Hot Cocoa is packed with business application programs, home management help, programming tips and tutorials product reviews, and more. Subscribe for just $24.97 for 12 issues. That's 30% off the newsstand price. Let Hot Cocoa show you how much time you can save with your color computer. And save even more time with Instant Cocoa, the cassette version of Hot Cocoa Magazine, containing all of the programs that appear in the issue. See the latest issue of Hot Cocoa Magazine for details. Hot Cocoa, available at fine retailers everywhere. Hello, Cocoa Cruisers. Welcome back. Uh, this is going to be a little impromptu, somewhat impromptu, <laughs> not quite as prepared as I usually do, but hopefully it'll still be entertaining tech segment. Someone asked me to go into a little more detail about an LFSR, which is a software technique for generating random numbers. Well, I thought it might be good. <laughs> Maybe I can make it interesting enough. So hold on, let's see where we go with it. Okay, so the real point is random numbers. How do you generate random numbers? Well, the thing is, is computers really can't generate truly random numbers. If you think about it, if you know much about computers at all, it ought to be pretty obvious why that is, since computers just execute programs. <laughs> they execute code one after the other. The results for the same code and the same input should always be the same, right? Um, if you have a computer that's not doing that, uh, then it probably needs service. Uh, of course, we have uses for random numbers, or at least numbers that seem random, uh, particularly for video games or any other kind of game, whether it's video game or text game or whatever, and maybe for some other things, for you know statistical sampling or, or some other things you might do in a lab. So 
So how do you get? How do you do it? Right. Well, there's a variety of techniques. If you look for um, generating random numbers, uh, you'll find a, a number of hits on the internet. Found one that generated that suggests um, you can have physical sources. You can actually go out and flip a coin. Not very good for a computer. Theoretically, you could hook up a microphone and put it in some place with, with like a fan or, or other source of what's called white noise. You know, basically that does sound kind of like waves of the ocean or whatever. That kind of covers the entire spectrum of sound with noise. <laughs> um, and so theoretically, you could sample that and get a source of random numbers um, that would correspond to the amount of you know randomness in the noise, right? Whether or not that works out, we had some um, links recently about John Mark Mobley, I think, was hooking up um, an AM radio, which should be somewhere, depending on how exactly you've hooked it up, to to, to that source of noise, and he had kind of mixed results. So your mileage may vary. There are some various techniques. You, you can start with sort of less random data, do some calculations and some kind of statistical stuff and make it look more random, whatever. Mostly what you do is use some form of what we call a pseudo-random number generator. And so pseudo-random, pseudo-random, pseudo means kind of, you know, like or similar or acts like or, you know, something like that. And so pseudo-random numbers are numbers that kind of appear in a sequence that is difficult for humans to predict what's coming next, but you're not actually random. And so typically this is some sort of a mathematical equation that just kind of iterates over itself. And, um, you know, sometimes you'll see, I've seen a lot of that basically take the existing value of the, of the, of the, this random number generator and add this other random value and then divide by this other value and whatever you get, that's the next value. <laughs> and, there may be some good math about that, and there's probably a name for that. I don't actually know what it's called, um, and I'm not convinced that it's super well-supported for <laughs> randomness, but uh, some people use them and have good results. So it's like that might be called a linear congruential generator. Um, I don't know. <laughs> anyway... One that has been commonly used in back to the early days of video games, probably because not only is it fairly easy to implement in software, it's also fairly easy to implement in hardware, is something called a, a linear feedback shift register, or LFSR. You might glean the, the name shift register as part of that. And so the basic structure of an LFSR, as you might imagine, it is essentially a shift register. So you have a, a collection of one-bit memory values like flip-flops chained one to the other uh, so that the output of one feeds the input of the, of the next. And that basic structure, you would have a, a common clock and so you just would clock through and the bits would travel one to the next. Uh, this is commonly used for like serial communications where you load on all the bits at once and then shift them out one bit at a time or shift them in one bit at a time. But that's not exactly what we're talking about. So it's the, the other part of that LFSR, the LF part is the linear feedback. 
basically what you're doing is taking bits from the LFSR, bits from the current value, and applying a mathematical step to them, or you know, typically it's an XOR, feeding that back into the, the input. Because of the the action of that exclusive OR, at a few, inter, re-entering at a few points in the chain, you get some variation. So, if you look up the LFSR uh, entry on Wikipedia, there's a whole lot of stuff there. A lot of math, uh, a lot of examples. One thing that you quickly glean from there is that there's more than one way to build an LFSR. The biggest ones, uh, the biggest differences is um, a Fibonacci LFSR, which kind of puts the um, XOR tree to the side of the the shift register and kind of taps from multiple points within the shift register. And then something called a Galois. I'm assuming it's French. Maybe it's Galois. <laughs> um, it says named out a French mathematician, mathematician. So Galois LFSR. Uh, this one takes each each exclusive OR gate and kind of embeds it in the chain, um, so that um, instead of instead of every bits, you know, every flip flops output going to the next flip flop, some of them feed into the XOR and the XOR gate output feeds to the next flip flop. But it turns out that essentially equivalent um, or somewhat equivalent. <laughs> For the details of how they differ, you have to check out the web page there, the, the, the Wikipedia page. But the point being is that you can get essentially the same sequences uh, from essentially the same inputs or seed values, depending on exactly how you implement them. And from looking from the sample implementations, at least in my eye, the Galois implementation is easier to implement in assembly language or about anything. If you're implementing in C, well, they've already implemented it <laughs> for you, so there's that. But simpler implementation in assembly language uh, makes them faster. They're already fairly fast either way, but that much faster, that much better, from, for, especially if you're using them in something like a game. Implementing them is mostly an exercise for the listener. Like I said, the RC implementations just gives you a pretty good start. You know, if you're trying to implement one and you need more help than that, well, you can send a, a note. I, I don't promise, but <laughs> it might be interesting enough that I'll try to help you. It shouldn't be too difficult to implement. And if you need to implement random numbers in whatever language you're using, you know, almost every language has, uh, as long as you have uh, bitwise operations, where you can do, you know, logic gate type operations that you should be implement uh, either form of LFSR in whatever programming language you're using, either of those two forms at least. There are some other variations which could be more or less difficult. Anyway, when you pick an LFSR, uh, you need to decide, decide basically on the width of the, the stored value, the current value and that's going to influence how many random numbers you can get in the sequence before you repeat. Also influencing that will be what's called the, the, the feedback polynomial. And um, the polynomial, I don't know why they do it this way, but it, it's, a, it's a way of encoding where you place the taps for your XOR values that expresses it as a little equation like X squared plus X plus 1. 
<laughs> or, you know, X to the 20th plus X to the 17th plus 1. Anyway, it's just what they do. <laughs> the exponents in those equations relate to where you put the tabs for your XOR. And depending on which equation you use and which size of um, your current value, it'll determine the period as far as how many numbers can you generate before you repeat, which could be important because um, the polynomials, polynomials that have fewer taps, um, fewer use, that's fewer times you have to compute XOR, which isn't difficult, but it's still one more thing to do. If you have fewer tabs, it'll be that much cheaper to execute, and of course, um, it might the the width of the of the um, current value might influence that as well. Turns out there's not that many <laughs> variations, so it's probably not a big performance gain to pick just the right polynomial or whatever. But you know, your mileage may vary. But there's typically there's known sets of polynomials with that will repeat in certain sequences, and there'll be some polynomials if you just start picking your own, you might pick one that repeats kind of prematurely. So like if you had a 16-bit current value that somehow would loop in 64 tries or something, that'd be a <laughs> kind of dumb to have that many bits just to have the loop that often. But again, you know, your mileage may vary. The biggest thing when you're using a, a LFSR is you want to make sure it never gets seeded with a value of zero. Because if you think about it, <laughs> you know, zero is just going to shift or shift out and you get zero back in every time. And you have the XORs that are supposed to um, theoretically change the value from time to time. But if all the values are zero, then the XORs are always going to come back the same. So you don't want to use a zero. Uh, you'll end up with your LFSR just generating nothing but garbage. So... Uh, so how do you get your seed in the first place? Well, I mean, you can start with a, a set number, and that can be useful because, like about any pseudo-random pseudo number generator, if you always start with the same value, you'll always get the same sequence. And so if you want to use your LFSR to then generate, say, um, a graphical landscape or a, a treasure map or something like that, so long as it generates it, doesn't you know, the way you want it the first time, if you always start from the same place, you'll always get the same sequence. Uh, in fact, this is um, how the uh, pitfall, Atari pitfall, <laughs> is renowned for having generated its screens that way, which saves you from having to store all that in ROM, for example. So, what's a good way to get your, your seed? Um, well, I mean, you can, like I said, you can always use the same value if you want, uh, if you're using it to then to control enemy movement, for example, that means your game's always going to play about the same, uh, or at least it's always going to start about the same. So you usually want something else to to influence that. So one technique I've used is you can have a um, a counter that starts uh, you know, when the game starts. You can start counting just a free counter, say from zero to two fifty, well one to two fifty five and then back to one. And then the first time someone hits the keyboard, you freeze that value and then use that to generate your your seed. That's probably random enough that um, that combined with the fact that you're using an LFSR, no one will be able to easily detect 
um, or with their human brain at all detect that you're, you're using a certain algorithm <laughs> for your random values. So there you go. <laughs> you know, like I said, you use kind of the spinning counter as a seed generation for your linear feedback shift register. You pick a, a set of uh, a polynomial and a proper width so that your LFSR will then generate enough variables to be useful um, before it loops. And then, um, you know, once it, no one will remember how many times you've, <laughs> if you pick a big enough number for the loop size, no one will remember that this is the, uh, you know, 3,000 or whatever time you've checked the variable. They probably don't know exactly when you're checking the, the, the random number generator anyway. So it preserves the illusion of truly random numbers. Generally speaking, that's good enough, especially for computer games on a 40-year-old computer played by 50-year-old men <laughs> reliving their time when they were 10. <laughs> so I do use an LFSR in Farfall. Uh, use it uh, to generate, well, to generate the... the the sequences for the um, platforms. You use it for generating the, the sizzle sound uh, when you die. I think I use it for a couple of other things as well. But anything that needs random numbers, uh, I use it. Oh, I was going to say, so for example, you picked a 16-bit value for your, your current value, your seed value for your LFSR. Some things are random, and you only need to pick, say, you know, from between one one of four, for example, you really only need two bits for that. So you can take your, you can increment your LFSR and then just look at any given two bits. And it doesn't have to be the bottom two bits. It could be bits 13 and 14 or 10 and 11, or it could be, you know, 9 and 13. I mean, whatever two bits you want. Based on that, uh, if you have some kind of unrelated things happening, so for example, like the flame effect at the uh, top of the screen in Farfall, you could increment uh, your LFSR once, use some of the bits for like the flame effect and some other of the bits for the the, the pattern for the, the platforms. And then if you had something else like um, you know, a bad guy or something that popped out, there could be other bits used for that. You wouldn't need to recalculate every time. You could just use different parts of the value returned for different things. The problem being, of course, is that if you do that over and over again, then um, you're essentially tying those events together. And at some point, it might be noticed or noticeable that the flickering of the flame somehow is somehow relates to the, uh, the the types of platforms, for example, just to relate it back to Farfall. Depends. You might try it. You know, maybe it'll work for you. Maybe it won't. <laughs> The great thing is the LFSR calculation is usually not too too bad, so you can just bump it more often if you need to. Okay. Well, let's see. Is that cover it? I think so. It's not really that complicated of a of a technology. If you need more information, definitely check the Wikipedia entry on LFSR or linear feedback shift register. And this is a topic that's covered a lot in computer science uh, sources. And so uh, I'm sure you can find more information if you need to. If it's not obvious, only describe the software. But you can uh, hopefully you can see, if you're a hardware guy at all, hopefully you can see where 
you could easily implement an LFSR in hardware with actual ex exclusive OR gates and actual flip-flops, then use that into a hardware pseudo-random number generator. This is used in, say, the noise channel for the uh, SN76489 and some other sound chips from the era. It's a, it's a commonly used technique, in both in software and hardware. So, if you didn't know before, now you know. <laughs> Alright, well that's probably good enough. Uh, hope I haven't hurt anyone's brain or whatever. And um, I'll let you go now, but uh, thanks for listening. And of course, uh, Coco Forever. This month in Coco History. Welcome to This Month in Cocoa History, where we explore events in the life of our favorite home computer. I'm Boise Pete, and this month we look back 34 years to the debut of a very special computer. The Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City was buzzing with activity on Wednesday, July 30th of 1986, as Tandy executives prepared to introduce five new computers. The Tandy 1000SX and EX debuted for consumers desiring MS-DOS compatibility, while the Tandy 3000 and the 3000HL focused on the business end of the PC market. But what stood out for its uniqueness was the Tandy Color Computer 3. Imbued with a palette of 64 colors, high-resolution graphics, and 120K of RAM, and priced at $219.95, the computer was the culmination of years of waiting from dedicated Coco fans. The rumor mills on Delphi and CompuServe were churning out word of a possible major upgrade just months before, and now it had arrived. Tandy's John Roach stood at the podium to introduce the Coco 3 to the audience. To the press in attendance, he stated of the machine, quote, Its incredible price performance, additional memory, and versatility will no doubt make it the choice computer for many professionals, educators, and families, end quote. Also on hand were Mark Siegel and Barry Thompson of Radio Shack to herald the new machine. Rainbow Magazine's publisher Lonnie Falk and managing editor Jim Reed were also in attendance, with the former seen trading notes with Microsoft's Bill Gates. Rainbow columnist Dale Puckett and OS9 users group leaders Bruce Warner and Brian Lance were also on hand to see the new computer in action. Today, the Coco 3 continues to move around electrons in its 30-plus-year-old innards, delighting young and old alike and beckoning each of us with its glowing green screen and multicolored blinking cursor. The Coco 3 is indeed forever young. And that's this month. Since 1994, Cloud9 has made cool stuff for your color computer. Now Cloud9 is proud to announce the 2MB Triad Plus Memory Expansion Board. The Triad Plus works in two ways. Purchase just the Triad Plus board to expand your color computer 3 from 128K to 512K of RAM. Or add the new Protector Plus MMU to access the full 2MB of static RAM aboard the Triad Plus. And the Protector Plus MMU utilizes full buffering to protect your CPU. Unlike previous 2MB memory expansions for the Coco 3, the Triad Plus operates seamlessly without the need for special patches, configuration, or workarounds. Games like Donkey Kong Remix and Sierra Adventure games simply work without hassle. And the Triad Plus will reduce your Coco's power consumption and heat generation. The Triad Plus and Protector Plus MMU, only from the innovative engineering of Cloud9. Cool stuff for your color computer. Visit cloud9tech.com for details. Welcome back to Neil's Corner on episode 62 of the Coco Crew podcast. This month I've got something really exciting to talk about. During the months of COVID-19 and being stuck in quarantine, I not only started working on producing Coco game cartridges, 
but I started another project in a joint venture with a good friend of mine in the area. This project is called the Gamester. It is a fully featured classic arcade joystick for your Tandy Color Computer 1, 2, or 3 and any Tandy 1000 computers that support the standard DIN style joystick ports. It will also work on a Dragon with the supplied adapter upon request to convert the 6-pin into 5-pin for Dragon input. Alright, before I get into details about the Gamester arcade joystick, let me give you a brief backstory. Going back to CocoFest 2014, I was talking to John Linville, and I mentioned how jealous I was of his Farfall arcade joystick. He got made up special with molded plastic. However, he was kind enough and drew me up a schematic at his booth for wiring up arcade components to a Coco joystick port. Later on, when I got back home, I was eager to build and test it, but I didn't have any enclosures to build it in. I looked around my shop and found an old wooden cassette tape crate. Well, before you know it, I drilled out some holes and got all the components mounted and wired up in it. It was crude, but it did the job and definitely was good enough for a proof of concept design. And what do you know? It worked perfectly, all but I had the directions reversed. No big deal, I was able to correct the wiring in no time. The following year I took it to CocoaFest and I had it on display at my table for people to use. Everyone seemed to really enjoy it and I even had a few offers to sell it. I decided on keeping it since I knew later on I wanted to enhance it. Well, unfortunately, the years went by and I wasn't able to find a proper enclosure to build these in because of the clearance you need for the arcade joystick and the buttons. I searched everywhere for project-type boxes and they either would be too large and bulky and also didn't look very professional. I didn't want this joystick to look homemade or homebrew. I also looked into 3D printing, but that wasn't the best solution either with the wait times and imperfections that can arise. So I kind of just shelled this project for all these past years until my friend and I were talking mid last year about designing a custom enclosure out of wood. Now my friend, he's into professional woodworking and he can make some amazing furniture and other smaller sized items. He told me no problem, I can work on a design with the dimensions I gave him, but there's only one problem. He needed to finish building and setting up his new wood shop. Luckily he finished it late last year and he even installed a wood stove in there to keep warm and he can work through the winter months. Well, January 2020 rolls along, and we were able to get this project off the ground. He came up with a prototype, which we call the Mark II, because the original cassette tape crate one that I made is the Mark I. The Mark II proved to be a success. It was a little on the larger side and didn't have as fancy woodworking, but it did work and was a thousand times better than the Mark I in my tape case. Suddenly before we knew it, the pandemic hit in March. We both had a lot more time to work on this project. This is when he created the Mark III. Now at this point, this is where the Gamester joystick really came to fruition of the Mark IV, which is the final product we offer today. It took months of prototyping and scrapping wood to get it just right. All right, let me describe the Gamester arcade joystick and features as best I can. The stock regular model we are offering is made out of real pine wood, not MDF particle board. With a nice wood stain verithane finish, the dimensions are 13 inch long, four and a half inch depth, and three inch in height. The joystick components are all high quality arcade genuine parts. The joystick component is a genuine zippy stick, and the switches are genuine classic red cherry fire buttons. The joystick has two fire buttons to support the later Coco 3 and Tandy 1000 games that use the second button. Another nice feature I incorporated into the design is a modular cable. Because of this, it can also come in custom lengths upon ordering. The standard length is 6 feet. Because it's modular, you never have to worry if it wears out because it can easily be replaced. Absolutely everything that went into making this joystick is super high quality. From the components, switches, wire, and wood plus wood materials. The regular standard model we offer in this exact configuration will be priced at $80. 
the amount of hours that goes into making one of these plus materials, believe me, we are not getting rich. This project is definitely a labor of love. It's something I've always wanted to offer to the community because, well, let's face it, the joysticks Tandy provided us aren't really the greatest and are prone to failure over time. The game store is built to last and can easily be serviced to keep going for a lifetime of gaming enjoyment. Because this joystick is made to order, we are also offering custom versions. Example, if you'd like an exotic type of wood, or if you'd prefer the joystick left-handed, meaning the joystick on the left and buttons on the right, these are all possible options. Just need to specify before ordering. I will be posting pictures of it on the social media Coco, Tandy, and Dragon groups. If you do not use social media and would like to see pictures, please feel free to email me at neil at cococrew.org, and I'll be happy to send some pictures along to you. Also, if you have any questions, please send them my way. I tried to talk about and describe everything I could think of on here, but I'm sure I've left something out. Well, there you have it. Another piece of quality hardware for your Coco to improve your game high scores with. Until next month, happy gaming and Coco forever. AutoTerm turns your Coco into the world's smartest terminal. Scroll text forward and backward. Save, load, and delete files while online. Full support for the RS-232 pack, X modem, and even split screen for packet radio. Screen widths of 32, 40, 42, 51, or 64, plus 80 column support for the Coco 3. Switch instantly to word processing mode. Find strings instantly. Create text. Make corrections, save, or load files. Then upload them to a remote system. Fully compatible with Telewriter. Plus full automation tools to automate dialing, keystroke, macros, uploading, and downloading. AutoTerm runs on the Coco 2 and Coco 3. No other computer can match your Coco's intelligence as a terminal. AutoTerm from PXE Computing, Richardson, Texas. Well, we have reached the end of the podcast. This concludes episode 62. We hope you found it entertaining. Special thanks goes out to our host, John Linville, for procuring all those news articles and providing us with another tech segment. Big thanks to Mike Rowan for painstakingly editing the podcast and creating those super fun commercials. Huge thanks to Boise Pete, our Coco historian. He remembers it, so you don't have to. Thank you to Fran Purcell for giving us some of your time to record an interview with you. Last but not least, thank you to all who listen and support us each month. We also appreciate your feedback. Until next month, happy cocoing and retro forever. It's a blast from the past. Please listen carefully. Like there's no tomorrow. What is this crazy rock and roll music anyway? It's a blast from the past. Dance, dance.